And welcome to our final Cinetopia show of 2020. I think 2020 couldn't end fast enough for all of us. It's been a crazy year. Um, I'm Amanda Rogers, uh, uh, director of Cinetopia, and uh, I'm here with some regulars um, on our final show. Jim Ross, uh, managing director of uh, Take One Magazine and also co-producer on the show. Jim, how are you? I'm good. Well, all, you know, 2020 and all that, but in general, yeah. I'm all right. Yeah. Exactly. Back with Steph uh, Brown, who's been on the last couple shows, so it's great to have you back. And um, now that I'm back too, <laughs> so uh, uh, how are you doing? I'm great, thank you, Amanda. How are you? Not too bad. I don't. I finally I got a computer back, so I can actually like do work again. And uh, yeah, you know, like with COVID and whatnot, you need you need a computer to to make podcasts and and do just about everything. We're also back with Mark Nelson, who was one of our most regular uh, contributors uh, this year. And uh, Mark, great to have you back on our final show of 2020. Great to be back, Amanda. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and you and you have been doing your master's at the University of Edinburgh um, in film as well, right? Yes, yeah, that's just about to finish up for the semester. Um, already looking forward to going back, so that's a high recommendation. <laughs> that is very good. And you're joining us while, uh, yeah, at the end of the semester, which as I recall from my master's, I was in, yeah, I was just writing papers and papers and papers. So thanks for joining us. Um, so today we're going to uh, talk about our favorite, uh, we, we kind of do this every year, but we, uh, we're going to talk about our favorite films of the year. And uh, we're also going to be uh, doing our shorts recommendations as well. Um, but we have four films to review um, that will be coming out either um, online or, you know, where you can see a film. And uh, that is Stardust by Gabriel Range, uh, American Utopia, which was um, filmed and directed by Spike Lee. But it's about uh, it's a David Byrne um, Broadway show. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, directed by George C. Wolfe, but based on a play by August Wilson. And Il Mia Corpo, a docufiction film by Michele Panetta. Um, I also got to interview Louis Passon, who's a Scottish writer and director. Um, and his film Neville is Dead was recently part of the Short Com Film Festival and also was shown as part of the Glasgow Short Film Festival this year. Uh, we talk a lot about his work and the short I'll be recommending later in our short segment is a comedy horror about something I've often had nightmares about. Um, we have some real good, exciting news that we'll be sharing with you in the new year um, around certain projects that we've been working on behind the scenes. But, uh, you know, we had this really fantastic crowdfunder uh, where we raised 10,000 pounds, which included, um, you know, match funding from Creative Scotland to run outdoor uh, project projections um, in the coming year. So um, hopefully we'll be doing a test this week, but I don't want to talk too much about it in case, yeah, just it's, you know, 2020 has really not been a positive thing for any of us. Um, so uh, if in case that doesn't work out exactly and it's not as hybrid as I want it to be and more online, then um, we'll uh, we'll move forward for an exciting 
launch in February around in Leith. And um, so if you can think of some films that have some attachment to Leith, you might know where we're thinking about for that project. Um, oh, I also got to be part of an online um, film the film um, exhibition conference This Way Up, which I always highly recommend anyone who's interested in exhibition. Uh, in the past couple of years, I've, I've been part of the development forum, but um, it was really interesting to see it. And I highly recommend if people can go back and look at it, um, that they have all the, the, the stuff online in, in about a week. Um, it's really interesting this year. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like the whole cinema industry has blown up. So if that's not enough suspense to keep you turning in, I don't know what is. So stay with us. Hello. Name? David Bowie. 12 singles, every one a total failure, except Space Oddity. The record company finds the album too weird for the eggs. I need to be known. I, I need them to know me. There's only one guy at Mercury who doesn't hate your new record with every bone in his body. David Bowie, I presume. Ron Oberman, Mercury Records. We got packed couple weeks coming up. Chicago, Philadelphia, New York, and then out to LA. I think we can make it work. All it takes is one believer to change the world. And we got two. Two? You believe in yourself, don't you? I think you're gonna be the biggest star in America. This is a queen family rock station, so keep it safe. Tell me about the new album. Well, what's it all about? It's about the years I spent dressing in women's clothes and getting laid. Our first film that we're gonna review is uh, Stardust uh, by Gabriel Range. Jim, would you like to do an introduction on the film? So Stardust, uh, as you said, is basically so it's basically focusing on a particular segment of David Bowie, and and I've always called him David Bowie, but I'm now realizing how wrong that is. So forgive me if the odd Bowie slips in here, right? But it focuses on a particular segment of David Bowie's early career, uh, where he went to the United States um, after the release of The Man Who Sold the World, and Basically, it's trying to get to the the genesis, I think, of the, the Ziggy Stardust alter ego, right? Which is kind of the, the, when he adopted that persona and then the music became with it, that is basically kind of what really launched him, right? He was known for Space Oddity, but I think he did, it was after that he really took off. And something I didn't know, actually, was that when that persona came about and the, the album... Ziggy Stardust was released that actually prompted more people to buy Hunky Dory, right? The album he'd released before that and actually went above um, Ziggy Stardust in the charts, right? So it was really the thing that launched him and it's basically trying to find what the genesis of this was, right? What was his inspiration for this? What are the What's the experience that shaped that idea, right? And it focuses on a couple of main things. The, the first one is that his music is too challenging for the American audience, and it's trying to find a way for them to engage with that. At this stage, there's still the worry that he's like a one-hit wonder. Right? There's spaced oddity, and it's basically this fear that he's a novelty act, and that he hasn't met the success that we now all associate with David Bowie. So that's one aspect of it. And then underpinning this whole thing is kind of his own his own concerns about his mental health and the mental health of his 
loved ones, and there's quite a very there's a very strong um, element related to his. I think it was half brother in real life, Terry, um, who was uh, schizophrenic, and basically a lot of a lot of things to do with him and his condition is referenced in the lyrics of the album in particular the single all the mad men and the facility that his brother was in i think is on the original cover of the man who sold the world so basically he's trying to capture how all this comes together and how we end up with ziggy stardust who i suppose in in that way that's the genesis of the david the david bowie that most people know um so yeah, it, it follows that him going to the states. He meets up with um, publicist Rob, uh, played by Mark Marin, who is basically the only person with Mercury Records in the states who seems to like the record. Um, and so you kind of end up with this bit of this sort of like odd couple thing. And the strange thing about the tour is he doesn't have the right visa, so he can't actually perform. He can't do any concerts or anything. In the context of the film. The strange thing is the Bowie estate did not approve of this film and it didn't release any of his music. So it's a David Bowie biopic with no David Bowie music. Um, so that's probably the thing that would be the, the, the oddest to kind of an outside observer. And it's quite, you notice it when you're in the film. But I'll leave it there. I have thoughts about it. Um, I'm interested to see what you folks thought of it i personally think there's quite a lot to talk about with this one um so what did you think um i i'll just quickly go i thought it was quite boring and um i didn't actually well i mean the, i think partially the fact that like you can't hear it like I, i'm a huge david bowie fan and uh one of the things that i'm most proud of my mom is that she went to a david bowie concert in the 70s so um the fact you can't hear a song is quite you know is is, is quite problematic but also um yeah i just said it's, it's for someone to make david bowie and his story and you know his trip to the you know andy warhol factory as as like boring as they did i just i like i i don't know but maybe i'm also just kind of sick of these like stories you know this uh, bohemian rhapsody and elton the elton john you know biopics which they both were done in very separate different ways. And this one just, just kind of fell flat to me, but um, you know, it's there's for obvious reasons, but I just, I just didn't really, I, I didn't really get into it at all. That's, you know, from, from the very start, I can, I can say that I'm interested in what everybody else thinks. I do try and avoid reading reviews before I watch something that I need to form an actual opinion about. Because I think you can kind of subconsciously be influenced by other people's experiences with cinema. Unfortunately, this film has been a rather controversial one. So I had seen a few pieces on the film before I was given the screener. What I will say is that I understand why it has been so divisive. And the main problem I think many people will find with this film, like Jim said, is generally the lack of music. Straight away, if you're told a film is going to be about a musician, you're going to be expecting quite a full soundtrack, such has been the case, the case a lot the past couple of years. You know, we've had, like you said, Amanda, a lot of musical biopics like Bohemian Rhapsody, Rocketman, Yesterday, etc. And although these films generally generate some bad, bad press, it's never usually because it's lacking in music. There were also some strange things that are a bit jarring in the script. For instance, 
Angie Bowie's character confused me slightly. I think they overplayed her eccentricity to the extent where it was a bit like a comedy skit, with her almost with her spending most of the film shouting at David over the phone and hanging up. And it's a shame because I like Jenna Malone a lot, and I think there's only so much you can do as a performer if you don't have the material to work with. But to be honest, I really don't think it was all that bad at all. There are actually some a few things that I really liked about it. I think Johnny Flynn's portrayal of, of Bowie was very impressive. I can't imagine it would be very easy to play that role. And he definitely gave Bowie the enigmatic edge that we would expect him to have. Um, the parts of him, his life that the film focused on, I found really interesting. I, I don't know how much of it is factual, to be honest, if much at all. But it definitely made me feel like I had learned a lot more about Bowie and where his music came from. Yeah, I think at the beginning they even say that it's like mostly fiction. So I think it's like an account on their 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 thought of what would have happened during that time. Yeah, I'm afraid I thought this was awful from the beginning to the end. Um, I'm not a Johnny Flynn fan, unfortunately. He, every time he turns up in a movie, he sucks the air of it for me. Which wasn't the case in the last film I saw him in, which was... Uh, what, about his, uh, what about his Cineworld adverts? Did he, oh, did he suck fantastic. the air out they're, of them? Or? They're, they're fantastic, Jim. What are you talking about? Um, Time for a tasty only... debrief. <laughs> oh, they're hideous. Um, <laughs> no, the only film I've seen him in that I've really liked uh, him in is Emma, the Autumn the Wild adaptation of the Jane Austen film that's uh, Jane Austen novel that's was out earlier this year. Um, he's actually very good in that, quite charming, and that's just unexpected because he's so bad in Beast. Uh, so totally awful in Michael Pierce's Beast. And he's really bad here, I think, too. He looks a bit like a blonde no fielding, and at times <laughs> he sounds... It's going to get worse. He sounds a lot like <laughs> David Mitchell from Peep Show. I'm like, and I think Amanda hit, it on the, hit the nail on the head when she said, how do you make Bowie boring? And he really is astonishingly dull. Like He has none of the presence that you'd expect of somebody attempting to play Barry and oh, you've said you've said the blonde no no fielding thing and I can't <laughs> I can't unsee it now. Oh Christ. Oh. Um I interestingly I I have something to agree with with both Mark and Steve and something to disagree with. I did not I, I need to think about this, right? Because like Bowie is a big deal to me. He's probably like my you know, my music tastes have changed as I've got older, right? But I think I'm kind of settling into he's probably one of my favourite artists, if not favourite artists of all time. And there's a similar kind of, like, family history there. That like My mum my, my goes on all the time about her. She went to see him at Murrayfield in the, the 70s, right? So, uh, you know, I've kind of grown up with this, like, these stories of, like, how great he is as well. So I, I want to like this film, I want to like this film. I and there are good elements to it. I'm going to disagree with Mark, but agree with Stefan that I thought Johnny Flynn was actually pretty decent, um, especially bearing in mind that he's kind of playing a version of David Bowie that people of my age certainly are not going to be familiar with. Right? You know, he wasn't always this kind of like perfectly minted, you know, music god. Basically, right? He came from somewhere. But it's just the rest of the film, it just seems so flat and lifeless. And the made it like, I actually think Johnny Flynn's performance is okay, but it, it needs a much better film to actually come together in any way. 
more than that, though, I feel like it's kind of, and, and I'm interested to see what what you folks think about this. I actually think it's pretty poor storytelling, right? Mm -hmm. In the sense that if you if you look at the events that the film spends, I don't know, ninety percent of his runtime on. Like, I mean, I don't think it gives much away to say that. Obviously, we start off in Britain. He goes to the states. He tours around, you know, every corner of the United States for like most of the film's runtime, and then right at the end, we come back to uh, we come back to the UK and kind of the immediate aftermath, and then at the at the end of it, we kind of have what is clearly meant to be the birth of Ziggy Stardust, right? You know, with the flame, you know, with the red hair yeah. and and everything, and the kind of the iconic look, but nothing that happens on that tour of the states actually leads to that happening it, it's when he gets back and there's this segment with his brother and the, the facility his brother is in this seems to be the genesis of that there's like only these like teeny tiny bits there's also the, there's also quite a lot of like really pretty in my view shoehorned references to the music right and sent it like there's one part where like the angie bowie character uh, says something like, you know, she's annoyed with him. She says, "We were meant to be king and queen, right?" Which is very obviously, in my view, a reference to the the lyrics of Heroes, right? Which isn't going to appear in the the Bowie discography for like at least a decade beyond when this film takes. But I, I, it's just there's bits and pieces where it doesn't it, it it doesn't work for me. I also I'm not entirely sure that the his brother schizophrenia is portrayed particularly well. To be honest, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, that seems to it, it's kind of to me it kind of felt like the most reductive version to kind of you, you know inspiration through trauma, like you know, is that that thing again? When potentially there is an interesting story there, there is an interesting thing. Now, whether whether Bowie's family want that story told, that's a different matter. But I feel like there is something there, but it's just that this. Films seem to be all all over the map, literally and thematically. I mean, it is in terms of like where they go in the states, but more problematically, the story to me just didn't hang together. I didn't. There was no causal link between what was happening on screen in the middle of it and where we end up with where we end up at the end of the film. To me, that link that link wasn't there. And whether it's true or not, whether it has his music or not. Is kind of inconsequential to a certain extent because I don't think that to me the story of the film doesn't hold together. I think it could have worked. I don't think it needs his music. I think it would be a lot better if it did have his music, but I don't think it needs it. I think that I think this film has bigger problems than not having Bowie's music myself. To go um, when you were talking about storytelling, I do agree with that. I think. One of the things I found really confusing with the film is actually the opening sequence. It start, it kind of starts like almost like a 2001 Kubrick tribute start to those kind of albums of Bowie and, um, sorry, Bowie, have the same problem as you should. Um, and it kind of, it makes you feel like this film, from how it starts, is going to be very cinemascopic and very flamboyant, very Bowie-ish. It kind of just deflates into a road movie which is a little bit confusing because it starts to show something that it doesn't actually become so I think that I don't know if it's to do with what you were saying then that the links just not being there or it's the fact that the film was never too sure what it was what it was going to be in the first place I think 
the way that it's the way that it begins and the way that it develops is very contradictory. All right. I, I mean, I guess I, I think that it is trying to be the next uh, Bohemian Rhapsody and it's trying to be the next uh, Rocket Man and it's trying to pick this seminal, important part of his life that was unearthed with their screenplay. And I agree. I just don't think it, it, it did it. And then they didn't, you know, then they didn't get the music and it just it's it's sad, but it's just it's another one needs to be made. And don't get me wrong, right? There is there is music in here, right? Which like is something that like there there's some stuff that um there's some stuff that like Bowie recorded as cover versions, which is in the film. But I actually found a quote, right? Which I to me, as far as I'm concerned, sums this film up, right? And it's it's from Johnny Flynn, right? Who apparently he wrote a, a new inverted commas. Bowie song for the film, right? And the intent is it's meant to be kind of an early thing. It's not meant to be amazing. It's meant to be like him ripping off Lou Reed or something, right? And it, I found it, right? And it's in, you know, and it's done in this scene where he's singing to a bunch of vacuum vacuum salesmen, right? It's the song that he sings there. And the quote from Johnny Flynn is this: "I don't think it's crap, but I knew it didn't have to be a brilliant song." Right? <laughs> and to me, that just sums this film up. It doesn't have, like, it's not crap, it's not terrible, but it doesn't have to be that great either. You slap Bowie on the poster, slap Bowie in the trailer, and people will watch it. And, like, really, to me, that just sums it up, right? I honestly, like, can can you have, like, something which sells this film less than, the you know, the star wrote a song for it? I don't think it's crap, but I knew it didn't have to be a brilliant song. I mean, my God. Anyway, sorry, there Mark. I think I cut you off before I went oh, into my worry. rant about that. But yeah, don't worry at all. I like I like the rants. Um, <laughs> I I I kind of disagree with the idea that um, yeah, that the music not being part of it isn't a problem. I do think it's a problem because you get to the Ziggy Stardust moment, and he comes out red hair, fabulous dress, ready to perform. And you're expecting you're expecting the opening <laughs> chord of like Ziggy Stardust. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. really are, and you get you get what is it? A Yardsbirds cover. And yeah. It's, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's shocking! It's absolutely shocking. Yeah, terrible, and another yeah. another thing you were another thing you were saying, Jim, about it being—I I think Steph said that it's a, a bit of a road movie, and that's true. It's absolutely full of bits, and I think this is to the level. This is like this can be identified in the level of scenes too, because there's a moment with Tony Visconti, the producer in London, which the shot choices in that scene are absolutely. I cannot make sense of them at all. There's one moment where it starts to move towards Tony Visconti and he kind of looks as though he's about to re- reveal this great piece of information, cuts back <laughs> completely still to uh, Johnny Flynn and then it cuts back again. You're thinking, okay, the camera's still going to be moving towards Tony Visconti and it's not. It stayed still this time. And you're like, what is the impetus of this scene? You're just cutting around, breaking up the space for no reason. It's, it's totally incoherent. Yeah, there's a very it glosses over like so many kind of like moments. Like, is there, there's one part where like he he meets Andy Warhol, and right there was a famous outcome of this. Like, you know, there's a, there's a shot, there's a film of like you know, yeah, Bowie doing mime or something. Like, that's an actual thing. You see, absolutely <laughs> sod all of it in the film. Like, basically, he goes in, it happens, and he comes out right. But there's nothing. It, it's just. It's just a case of it. No, it, that's what it I wants. Mean. It wants to get into the guts of his psyche, and it just doesn't do it. That's what I meant. How could you not? How could you not have a factory scene with like, like, or it, like a possible Lou Reed, like you know, meeting, and mm. not make that 
more interesting, even without music. Well, I well, agree instead, that you need the music, though. Instead, you can have Mark Bolin like skulking around in a terrible wig, like some sort of villain <laughs> from like a musical pantomime. I mean, like honestly, like, I do. It's one of these. Unfortunately, Stardust is one of these films where, like, in the moment, I, it was fine. I found it a bit dull, but like the more I think about it, I'm just like, nah, this is this is cursed from start to finish. Actually, but yeah. Well. That's our review on Stardust, and uh, yeah, take what you want. If you want to see Johnny Flynn, maybe be you know, yeah, write, write a terrible, not brilliant. I, I on January fifteenth, folks. <laughs> go. Oh, good God! All right. What if we could eliminate everything from the stage except the stuff we care about the most? Without cables or wires, what would be left? Well, it would be us and you. And that's what the show is. As people, we're a work in progress. Who we are, it extends beyond ourselves. To the connections between all of us. Uh, so the next film we're going to review is, um, well, it's actually been a play for two years, uh, American Utopia, kind of play and song show uh, by David Byrne. But it was filmed and directed um, by Spike Lee for this rendition that we're going to be uh, reviewing. Um, Steph, would you like to give the overview of that, of the film? Um, so it's pretty much about the talking heads frontman David Byrne as he tours um, Broadway with kind of hits old and new and an all-star band and quite minimalistic theatrics. And uh, Spike Lee directs and takes us through um, American Utopia's um, night on stage show- showcasing the mesmerizing swirls of, Bar- of Burns' um, musical talent, whimsicality and comically in touch political co- conveyances. So it's, it's pretty much a, quite an experimental show that strangely works in bizarre ways. Uh, so what did you think of it? Um, what I love about David Byrne's music, and I think if you are a Talking Heads fan, you're very much drawn to the childlike quality of the songs. And that that adjective always sounds a little bit negative, but it's really what makes their music so unique. It's the fact that it goes back to the expressiveness and imaginative way of thinking that you generally begin to lose accessibility to as you reach early adulthood, or perhaps even when you get into adolescence to an extent. Um, the messages laced within the musicality are very well executed, from the Black Lives Matter movement against police brutality to problematic vo- voting statistics, all the way to the very root of the socio-political problems we're currently at war with. What is really engaging about American Utopia is the way it discusses the changes that we experience in our brain and how we adapt to the world as we change with it. I'm not going to say evolve with because I'm not sure that's consistently applicable. 
just now. But um, I think the immersive experience that Burnt creates begins to get very innate, innately thought-provoking. It offers a new way to think and digest our current political climate. Um, you know, perhaps we were never fully, we're never able to fully comprehend the complexity of, of the world. Maybe we were never able to create, maybe we were never ma- meant to be able to create any form of universalism, but perhaps if we applied the simple values and analysis that we have formed from childhood, we could come closer to a sense of unity. It's difficult to, I think, going back to this discussion, it's difficult to label this film documentary concert. I'm beginning to think David Byrne is genre enough and it's a new genre that it's, it's, it's difficult to fit into words exactly what this is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, one of the things I have to say is like two of my biggest highlights in, in my own, you know, going to films and theater was to see David Byrne surprise us with uh, uh, at an Arcade Fire concert and David Bowie. So this has been been quite a like bring back good memories. But it also does remind me very much of some films that I uh, filmed for, you know, in a, a dance company, Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. And so I felt like I kind of I kind of was watching how this was being put on screen. And um, as someone who's done a lot of, I've seen a lot of theater, I, I guess I guess I'm pulling this question because I'm expecting maybe some debate on this right here from the other group. Um, I, I I don't know how much, I, th- I kind of wanted more in terms of like the actual orchestration of different shots and stuff because it wasn't something that I haven't seen a lot myself. Um, but you know, like the, the this definition of whether or not it's a film or a recording of a really amazing um, show that would have been really fantastic to see live. Um, I would just ask the whole team here. Um, so contrary to like some of my strengths of other opinions, this is not a hill I'm going to die on, right? <laughs> um, it's a recording of a great concert. It, it's not it's not a film in like the traditional sense, I think. Now, now there is an argument about whether that makes sense anymore and whether that view is outdated, and that and that's why this is not a hill I'm going to die on, right? I enjoyed this a huge amount, right? I really, really liked it. I liked the the segments of David Byrne addressing the audience in between. I love the music of him and Talking Heads, right? So. In a lot of ways, I really, really enjoyed this. In terms, of, I, I think where my 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 issue with in the in the broader context, right? Because in, in the in the in the context of just this film, I enjoyed it. I think it's very well shot and staged, not particularly inventively. I don't think. I mean, maybe that's just me, right? But you know, I don't think that. Yeah, you know, I mean, the the fact that Spike Lee directed the recording is being used as one of the selling points for it. I don't think there's anything particularly spikeleyish about it, you know. Um like don't don't be wrong, it's very well done, right? It's a very well made recording. But I don't think there's anything particularly remarkable about it. The where all the kind of the joy and the interest and the enjoyment comes from me is from the stage show itself, right? And I think I would have got that more so had I been at that stage show. In the broader context, I think where my issue with this comes in is this was not the, the format and what you see is not conceived as being for 
a filmed medium, right? And let's not get into, you know, TV film versus concert film versus film, right? Because I think that, to me anyway, that's the least interesting part of it. It was originally conceived for the stage. And in fact, there's segments in the film where he says as much, you know, if we strip everything back and, you know, so that, you know, and they're all, you know, none, none of them have shoes on. And like, you know, there's very much a an aesthetic that is being aimed for, which is designed to work in the theatre, right? And I think where my issue comes in is it's like, where do you stop? Like, it feels like the thin end of the wedge to me because the one that kicked this off for me, and I think where like you and me maybe disagree slightly, Amanda, or at least where I have stronger opinions, is the whole Hamilton on Disney Plus thing, right? And stuff getting spoken about. Now, as I understand, it's not eligible for Oscars, right? But, you know, people saying, oh, you know, should Leslie Odom Jr. be nominated for an Oscar for, you know, playing Adam Byrne Hamilton? Like, no. The man's already won a Tony. Like he did. Like this is not. It's not a film. It was not conceived for film. No, it doesn't need this. Beyond the fact, also Leslie Odom Jr. is in One Night in Miami, an actual good film where he actually gives a very good performance. So you could nominate him for something that was actually a film. But that's that's by the by. So I don't want to. I don't want to go too far off piste into the broader, um, the broader picture here. That's the only thing that annoys me about it is. It is a concert film, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. They have their place and they're very enjoyable and I think they're great. But as far as I'm concerned, this doesn't capture it any better than actually being at that concert would be. And that's the that's the thing for me. Um, so if you want to look at it as a pseudo-documentary, I don't know. Amanda, you're probably going to have stronger views about this than I would. I think that's a more accurate classification of it than it being a musical. But I don't know. This is where it starts to get a little bit... A little bit tricksy to me to actually actually define. What I will say is the film is very enjoyable, but I think it's as a result of the music and the stage show and David Burns approach to it. I don't think it's necessarily anything to do with the the filmmaking of it. I don't think the filmmaking has added anything to it, but fortunately the base product I found really pretty great. So, yeah, sure. Um I, I'm about to jump in about three different directions at once here. So uh and the one, the, the first thing to say is that I think I'm going to run in a different direction from everybody because I really love this, <laughs> and I like I like the Talking Heads a lot. Um, I like David Byrne slightly less, and I love Spike Lee. And I love Stop Making Sense, so I was very excited for this, and I'll talk about why uh, I wasn't so pleased by it in a moment. But I will say that the, the whole discussion of whether it is or isn't a film was kind of set. This uh, this whole debate was settled for me a few uh, decades ago when Jay Hoberman, um, a critic, an American critic, put a baseball game on his top 10 films of the year list for the Village Voice, uh, this settled it for me. It was like, it doesn't actually matter. It's moving image art, whatever you want to call it. Just put whatever you want anywhere. Think of it however, however you want to. Um, I, would, I would say that I'm far more impressed by Spike Lee's shot choices and his breaking up of the space. There's a wonderful bit of editing during the performance of Blind. I think the editing like really catches like the bounce of that song in a really exciting way. And before I start slagging it off, I will say um, that there are a couple of really good performances in it because it'd be hard not to have a good performance of Burning Down the House or Slippery People or Road to Nowhere, because, you know, even bad karaoke of these songs is still, like, enjoyable. It's like, it's like ABBA. You can't, 
They're basically. <laughs> I love he's basically, gone. You've gone for the proper provocative <laughs> word choice there. Have, yes, it's like Abba. The songs are absolutely imperishable, and you can't do anything wrong to them as much as you try. And I think Amanda's they really face. This is not going to come through on the podcast. Amanda's <laughs> face. Well, it'll only get better. Um, I found the whole staging, and this is a criticism of the both the show itself and of Lee's recording of it. I find the staging kind of contradictory because it's, he says at one point in one of his interminable to the audience speeches <laughs> that, um, that looking at people move freely is more interesting than looking at objects. And it's like, well, yeah, that's true, but that's not what you're doing in the, sh- that's not what he's doing in the show because there's an incredibly like geometrically precise staging, almost Tetris block like um, arrangements on the stage. So I don't know what he was talking about with regards to the freedom of movement that he supposedly had, like the whole pleasure of watching them or the supposed pleasure in watching them perform these routines is the constraint on them, which they then begin to break out of as the show goes along. But that's not, that's not freeing to me. Um, I will say I find this song, the song performances themselves actually quite dull in large part with the exceptions of the one I've, ones I've just mentioned and I did find his kind of Stephen Fryanizing speeches to the audience extremely banal like just <laughs> could not see the point in them for the Stephen most part Fry and Isaac. Oh, it's, Lord. It's, it is what he's doing the part at the beginning about babies' brains and how they lose neural connections as you age and whatnot that's Oh, that, that is a Stephen Fryanism, if you want to call it that. Just an extremely sounds intelligent, but is actually very banal. And that banality crosses over into the political material of his speeches as well. I think where there is a note of extreme liberal self-satisfaction, and I'll get an, a round of applause for saying the word fascism, and you'll all kind of agree with me. Um, I think also just incredibly childish diagnoses of what's wrong with the society. These um media savvy and i think very well meaning but also pandering and patronizing like um gestures towards colin kaepernick and um, black lives matter that i found like i'm sure they're well-intentioned and whatnot but they are they are banal they are extremely banal you see i'm i you see i'm gonna I'm going to disagree with you. Go ahead. I'm going to disagree with you, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm rolling. I'm rolling the sleeves up here, right? Because what I, would, I, I, I disagree in the sense that I'm the first one that will jump on something which is, in my view, self-satisfied, right? But to me, there were actually bits and pieces where I think the juxtaposition of what he was saying in between. Maybe we need to separate the delivery from the sentiment, right? Because to me. The segment he does where they're calling out the names of black people in the States who've been victims of police brutality, and then going from that reasonably quickly afterwards into what I thought was an excellent rendition of Road to Nowhere, and you think about the lyrics of that song in the context of what he's been speaking about, I actually think it worked really pretty well. Um, And to me, it didn't feel as shallow as it could have right because there is no doubt that it could be a case of like you know playing to the gallery a little bit right and i think it would have been very easy for him to play to the gallery right now where i will agree with you slightly is would i have liked this as much if i didn't like the music as much as i do right because burning down the house road to nowhere this must be the play like 
all these songs I think are absolutely fantastic. Would I get as much out of it if I didn't already know them and like them? I'm I'm willing to hold my hands up and say maybe not. That is entirely possible. But I actually think that, and then the segment he does about um, everybody's coming to my house, to me, it actually really... I, I engaged with it, I re- and I wasn't expecting to. Like, normally in these sort of scenarios, I don't. So I am, I'm going to disagree with you on on that. The, the one concession I will... The one concession I will give is... the. It's kind of what you said, right? Some of this music is so good that it would have to be a particularly terrible version of it to not like it and that's the only thing that I, I i will give a little bit of ground on right i think it is entirely possible this was an artist i was far less familiar with or far less fond with would i have got as much out of this no probably not so i seem to agree with what mark says about the fact that like and i'm going back to this idea of a definition where you know if a, if there's a moving image and there's a camera and there's people directing and you know coming up with these concepts, then it is fact a moving image, a film, whatever, a documentary, call it whatever you want. Um, that's fine with me. I think what's happening now is that we're having these discussions because yeah. the lines of where you actually see this film are changing. So, like, if for example you were to see American Utopia in a you know a, a a different version of 2020 with that like pre-covid pre-covid then you might actually have seen it live streamed and that would have been maybe more of a like a fascinating kind of event of, of it in this case it is just a record and i haven't i don't because i think there was like um a, the rolling stones documentary that was done by like scorsese and then you have like this whole history of like hbo films that are like basically just recordings of Broadway shows with a little bit maybe mm-hmm. of like an interview here and there. And I always bring that up. I always bring up the Al Gore, like inconvenient truth, which is like a PowerPoint presentation that like, I, mean, he, like, I flies, agree with you about that lies around and then, it, you know, and then it wins awards and it's like, yes, the important information, please get it out there. Like, this is really good, but also like you just showed us a keynote and the, that there's always I've always had this kind of like frustration with the documentary just being and and also I think because we're about to talk about another film that's like particularly um you know a classic theater director dash filmmaker who's you know taken a theater a theater piece and turned it into a film and this is always constantly happening you know like we're we're mixing media but I don't think that Spike Lee did something particularly innovative with this and I don't think that it was um, you know, it wasn't in see something, I guess it's my own imposter syndrome a bit, but like, I feel like I've created shots like that for Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater when I made a documentary. And it's, and it's a bit just like, it was a presentation of something that you would have seen on stage to me. And, and it's just not, it wasn't, you know, and also maybe because there was the live audience there and it wasn't like recreated and re-envisioned in that capacity, but that doesn't mean that it's not, a valid work of art and all the people who worked behind it and made it an interesting, you know, shouldn't be applauded in some capacity, you know? Yeah. And there were two films out last year that were very clarifying to me on the matter of uh, concert movies being films. And they were uh, the Aretha Franklin documentary, Amazing Grace, yeah. which has the flakiest uh, kind of rambling quality to the footage, but it doesn't actually matter at all. You can see Sidney Pollock in the frames, like pointing to the camera, move, move, go over there, capture footage that way. It doesn't matter because you're with the voice and the voice is the subject. 
And the other one is uh, the Beyonce Homecoming concert movie, the Coachella performance, which is amazing. And I defy you to watch that movie, and it is a movie, and see the editing between, because it's two nights, that was performed over two nights, and you can see when uh, the outfits change from yellow to pink. I defy you to watch that and not think, yeah, cinematic editing, it's like most impressive. So. They want to go. I'm not like because it seems like every time we have debates on the show, right? It, it then starts to circle back <laughs> to my hatred of the Oscars, right? But part part of the reason for my like is broadly speaking, right? I I agree. I agree with you, right? It doesn't matter what it is. Where you, you're t- you're talking to man who like one of the best films I saw in like 2006 when I was a student was Zidane, a 21st century portrait, right? Which for huge swathes of it is just following Zinedine Zidane around the football pitch, right? cinematically and, and it's now yeah okay sure cinematically and also you know with Mongwai and all the rest of it so there is that right but that's now that's now last time i checked i think it was like it was an installation piece in one of the museums or something right you know it plays on a loop or something anyway so i actually agree with the pair of you and it doesn't it doesn't matter right but where this all comes from is this like this ridiculous desire to categorize everything to award it right and you can spin this out into all sorts of things. Like, where do you draw the line between a lead performance and a supporting <laughs> performance? Like, it's just all the biggest load of, it's just all the biggest load of bullshit. And this is where it comes to. I'm like, if you're going to categorize <laughs> stuff, February, we're going to have to yeah. save this to February because I, we are. I knew you were going to go down this route, and I have yeah, so, I have so much waiting and ready for. For, for our February podcast on this subject. Right, I, I will park um, also. You're going to have to wait longer than that because the Oscars have been put back. So, oh, well, yeah. okay, but, sorry. Right, I, will, I will park most of it, right? But the, 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 to sum it up in one sentence, right? If you are going to categorize stuff in order to give it shiny gongs and say this is the best of it, then you need to be consistent in what you're doing. You can't just pull stuff in. And I'm not saying that, like, obviously, like, you're not the academy, you're not the people doing this, right? But you can't just pull stuff in because, like, you happen to like it, right? You, you can't pull it in, right? Because we like David Burns' American Utopia and we like the stuff he says in between, but we're not good. We're going to leave off, like, I don't know, some Justin Bieber concert or something because it's Justin Bieber. It doesn't work like that. Either you're including everything or you're not. Well, you brought up Zidane, which I think is a huge Cenotopia, like, and the people, the the long-term Cenotopians have had a long fight over this this film for quite some time, and I'm a huge fan of it, but that isn't, that, again, is an example of an experimental film that was brilliantly devised and shot in, you know, like, for the purpose of that, and I think what I'm saying, regardless of whether or not you want to call this a moving image concert film or whatnot, and as Mark mentioned, some other really good examples of ones that, you know, that are that are really, you know, different, is this is not taking any extra for me than what you would have seen in the theater. And I would have much rather been in the theater because I've been and you know I've been fortunate having worked with American Theatre Wing for a bit to be able to be in a lot of live Broadway shows and there's nothing like being in the theater live and I'm a film person and I'd go, you know I'd go to cinema more than I do for theater but it's really it's a it's a different medium and it's really hard to capture it um not to be I think this is going to come across as overly critical of the film in general, but I, yeah, I'm quite happy that there is quite a lot of these flexible definitions of what we class as a film or a moving picture as such. And I do think 
what complicates this is the addition of Spike Lee. This is what's made it, what is this a film now? You're having these kind of sequences within them, you're having these shots from behind the screens and it's uh, the way that it kind of distorts it is, is, is confusing in the way that the, we're now, we're now categorizing it in a way. But, you know, we <laughs> back in like, not even that long, but we've had films where it's, someone's literally got a video camera from their house and made up some improvisation Dogma 95 thing and we class that as a film, not to, you know, insult any of that kind of space, but it gets to the point where how much um, can you bend the rules before you, you don't really, you don't really have to give it a name anymore. It's not really important anymore. But I think that I think that with concert things, it's it's confusing, especially when you've got Spike Lee attached to it. And I'm going to kind of disagree with because I quite liked kind of what Spike Lee did add to the I don't even know what to call it the film or the the concert or whatever. Um, and I actually I think that the main thing that I really loved about it I think would be quite biased because I do like Talking Heads and and David Byrne quite a lot. But um, I actually loved the staging. It was almost like you when you're having you know, these kind of, he interacts with the audience and he's talking about um, particularly what sticks out is the problematic voting statistics. It's like, he goes to the audience, you know, only 20% of this crowd has voted in these elections and things. And it's all about, you know, it's difficult to, when he's kind of talking about, I suppose, America, American utopia that really realistically is never going to exist with what is currently going on and the way that people are voting. So I think it's, you know, it's difficult to kind of assert what that stage would look like. And I think it it does sort of, it's a bit strange. I do understand where like Mark's coming from saying it looks really bizarre because it does kind of feel like it's came out of like a David Lynch film at some points and it doesn't really, it's quite jarring. But at the same time, I think it works with the material that's being discussed. I think, I think I'll just, I'll just say to like my last thing to say, and I think this is mostly about quality and about the quality of the recording, right? And what the, what the person filming it does with the stage show. And I think Spike Lee does a cinematic recording of the show. I just don't happen to like it very much. But um, when we were we were talking, for another example, one of my favorite films, quotes, films from 1979 is Richard Pryor live in concert. That's just a stand-up set. But there's a director who understands when to go in close, when to cut to wide, understands the rhythm of the set and you know presents it in a way that I think qualifies cinematically. So I think this is really about like the quality of the recording rather than it simply being a recording itself. Well, I am going to go watch that homecoming um, Beyonce. It's it's uh, fabulous. Right after we stop recording this uh, podcast with your recommendation. And on that note, um, yeah, that's our thoughts on American Utopia. A two, a you know what to do. This would be an empty world without the blues. I try to take that emptiness and fill it up with something. But they want to call me Mother Blues, that's all right with me. It don't hurt none. Where's the, uh, the horn player? I got a friend. Come on, Levy. You rehearse like everybody else. I'm gonna get me a band and make me some records. I know how to play real music, not this jug band shit. You call that playing music? Yeah, I know what I'm doing. 
Notify me, I don't care. When I got there, they began to say. That's to get the people's attention. That's when you and Slow Drag come in with the rhythm part. Me and Cutler play on the break. Okay, so the next film we're going to review is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom that comes out on Netflix in a week or so, I believe. Um, Mark, do you want to tell us a little bit about that film? Sure thing. So it's set in 1927 in Chicago, and it follows an afternoon recording the songs of Ma Rainey, who's uh, kind of commonly referred to as the mother of the blues. Um, she's played by Viola Davis here with very smoky eyeshadow and a lot of attitude. Um, her band turn up for this recording session and they're kind of disparate characters. There's Cutler, who's the band leader, played by Common Domingo, who was wonderful in um, Barry Jenkins' uh, If Beale Street Could Talk. Um, it's also the last performance, last screen performance by Chadwick Boseman, who plays a kind of cocky trumpeter called Levy. And there are also um, Glenn Turman plays Toledo, who's the pianist, and Michael Potts plays, uh, I think his name is Slow Drag, um, one of the other band members. And it's kind of a chamber piece between these two rooms for the most part. There was a little bit of, um, uh, you know, made up location footage on the street outside the studio and other rooms that the characters enter into. But the main two are the kind of the band room where the band rehearse. Um, but there are kind of frictions and en enmities establishing themselves, mostly between Cutler, who's this very cool and assured figure trying to lead the band harmoniously, haha, <laughs> harmony, um, and Levy, who is kind of, he's, he wants to break out as a star. And there's this thread running through the film between uh, you know, issues of collectivity and issues of individuality and what stardom seems to promise for um, certain members of the, certain members of the band who want to kind of enact a kind of black American stardom in a context that would seek to deny it. Um, and yeah, the film sets about that recording afternoon and some tempers are frayed. Um, Steph, what did you think of the film? It's always quite fascinating to see the latex and the way text written for theatre translate into a screenplay. Um, you don't really have much room to experiment with contemporary text if you want to retain any authenticity from the original to the adaptation. With classical text, there seems to be much more flexibility in how they can be kind of reinterpreted. And well, as we have seen with the abundance of media representations in cinema, I, I love how Will's retelling like manages to encapsulate the atmosphere of the theatre. Like, um, you were saying where there isn't a lot of changes in the setting, it mainly takes place in two spaces. So you already have the sense that it's very focused on the original elements of the script. And much like the way plays develop, the characters open up and reveal more of themselves um, through the present and through direct dialogue. And I think keeping to the text's original structure helps to avoid falling down the sensationalist rabbit hole that films explore the issues of racism, especially in the Jim Crow, Crow era kind of fall down. And really, it doesn't really need the flashback sequences and any visual montage that, um, of the characters' stories that many filmmakers would use, because the performances within the film, particularly Davis and Bozeman, carry the kind of high 
hyperbolic, larger than lifestyle from original in a way that is still very compatible with the format of the film and film in general. Um, it's all around a very impressive and well-made adaptation, and I, I think it's one that manages to immerse its audience into the world very quickly, even with the minimalism and design that is taken from the original play that was, you know, um, from August Wilson. Yeah, no, I, I I like this a lot. I think what I will say about it is I think it's a very it's very much an actor's film, and I don't think that necessarily is much of a surprise coming from a, a stage adaptation. Um, Chadwick Boseman, I think, is excellent. Uh, Viola Davis is... I mean, she's consistent. For my money, anyway. Like she, She's consistently excellent. And that, that's true here as well. Um, Coleman Domingo, I've got a lot of time for. Uh, I actually... Mm-hmm. Did, like my, The first thing I came across him in was actually Fear the Walking Dead. The Walking Dead spin-off. Um, but basically, everything he's been in since then, I think, as Mark mentioned, if Beale Street could talk, is probably... A more recent example. He's one of these guys I could just listen to read out the phone book, to be honest. Um, so in terms of kind of the acting, the acting presences, I think that carries the the film. My my only my issue with it, such and it's a very mild one, is it I, I never really feel like it becomes particularly cinematic in a in a meaningful way, right? It, a lot of the focus is on the dialogue, and I think because the dialogue is strong and it kind of really gets you into the characters and their experiences and understanding where they are in this kind of like this, as Mark said, kind of like pseudo chamber piece, right? It's really only these two locations we're in. I think it gets away with it, but to me, that was kind of the same feeling I had with Fences, right? Which is an, another recent film starring Viola Davis, produced by Denzel Washington, mm-hmm. which is based upon August Wilson. And it's all for they're they're both from I think it's the, the Pittsburgh cycle, right? It's ten ten plays, right, set in different decades in the states. And to me, it, it kind of has the, the the film adaptation of it has the same strengths and weaknesses, right? It's very very strong on the acting performances. The kind of monologue bits are extremely powerfully delivered, and I think they really hit home. When you look at the film as a whole, as a film, I'm not convinced it's necessarily amazing. I think this is one of these films where I think what will stay with you is the acting and some of those deliveries rather than necessarily the film itself um as i say i think it's a pretty mild criticism because i think you know the film is constructed in such a way that it puts the emphasis on those performances unfortunately those performances are very good but i think if you're going into this like i don't want to see it say it seems stagey right because this is a common thing that people say about stuff that is adapted from the stage and i don't think it is necessarily it's more just if you don't engage with the performances, I think this would have fallen pretty flat. Fortunately, they are very good, and I don't think, as a result, it does fall flat. I think it's very engaging. But for me, I kind of had the same issues with this as I did with Fences. See, I think this is a great adaptation of a, a theatre play and keeping to the the respect of the play and the focus on the actors and the focus of the intimacy of that, you know, space. Cause like, it was like, there's a element of that to me that was like, oh, this is obviously a play. I can feel that we're only in a few spaces. And, and as 
Steph was mentioning, we don't need to go backstories and we don't need to do flashbacks and we don't need to add this extra stuff that like film directors think they have to add because they can. And I think because the strengths of those performances were exceptional, that's part on the director who also is a theater, an, an amazing theater director, um, but also has that skill to take this into um, to a film. So for me, I, I actually really liked it because it, I'm not, I don't need to see the, you know, the next, oh, we took a, we took a theater play and changed it up for a film and did it, you know, in that classic way. We, I thought this was a really interesting adaptation and a unique way for me to see it. And I enjoyed it. Unlike what I think we were talking about with American Utopia, which was like, I don't think that adaptation of a theater show was enough to me to be as, you know, unique enough that I'm like, wow, that's a great adaptation of, you know, of, of, you know, a concert or, a, you know, a theater show in the same way that I think this was. So I, I highly, I highly liked this better is, is my point. Yeah, I think the, the chat about staginess, which gets on my nerves too, because it kind of followed um, One Night in Miami, which you've just mentioned in the previous segment, which um, is directed by Regina, uh, Regina King. And I suppose we'll talk about it next month. But just to say that got a few notices which said something on the lines of what it, uh, King doesn't do very much with cinema and the film. And I, I find that unfair because that, that film is it's in it's enclosed. It's in tightly enclosed spaces. But there is a bur there are bursts of energy mm -hmm. coming from those actors. And it's a real disservice to the actors when you say that it's not cinematic. A similar thing happens here. I think it begins quite strongly um, in differentiating the spaces cinematically because you have this, the band room and the cutting between the characters in the band room is quite rapid. And then when Ma Rainey enters the studio upstairs, you have this long unbroken take that walks around the room. So it differentiates those spaces, I think, quite intelligently. It then loses it slightly when the dialogue begins really hitting a different pace, particularly in the band arguments where you have discussions about hedonism, black religion, um, you know, the threat of white people, like you have all of these subjects just kind of amassing together. And I'm not quite sure that Wolf's direction rises above a level of functionality with regards to who is where and how the lines are delivered. But when the performances are like this and when they're as carefully cared for as a theater director making a film cares for them, um, I, I think that's, that's forgivable. Um, I particularly want to say I love the confrontation between Coleman Domingo and Chadwick Boseman, the differences in temperament and character and in performance style are, are really beautiful and really well studied. Um, Boseman has this kind of like constant activity. He's constantly moving around the room, dancing, um, you know, just about to hit a note on his trumpet and he's extremely cocksure. Whereas Coleman Domingo, cool as ice, doesn't need to move, doesn't need to assert himself, just a natural leader. And the contest that emerges between them, I find fascinating. Yeah, no, I, I, I'd agree with that. It's funny that you mentioned One Night in Miami. Like, I'm going to keep my, my powder dry on that because we may well talk about it on the show next month. But I was surprised mm. with how much that did. I didn't get quite the same feeling with this one. And it's funny the thing you say about, like, in terms of differentiating spaces and how it starts off well. Again, that's exactly what I got from Fences. Um, so I think uh -huh. the 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 character dynamics and the acting is what really sells me on this. Um, you know, I don't want to come across as saying that I think it's like you know visually dull or anything like that. I don't think like I don't think it's not it's not badly done. I just don't think it's a particularly 
memorable aspect of the film. But in this particular instance, I don't think that really matters because I think the memorable the memorable aspects should be elsewhere, I think, in this instance. And fortunately, as you've kind of highlighted in the contrast between uh, Chadwick Boseman and Coleman Domingo's characters and you know various things like that, it, it is there. It is there. And that really is what the, the main selling point of the film is for me. I will say I struggled in part with some of Viola Davis's performance. I think she's excellent at the kind of at the introduction when she's when she walks into the space for the first time and she puts her uh, like manager, the guy recording, really through the ringer. There's there's some great interplay between the two actors there, but some of her mannerisms felt a little bit studied to me in a kind of uh, kind of mannerist way and I suppose that kind of that is kind of the point of when she's performing after she performs she kind of gleams she's like she's so alive and she's in love with performing and you can see it just after they finish she's kind of turning to the band and has this great witty repartee with them that she doesn't have otherwise it's only after they perform the task for her that she sees value in them and that's that is an interesting dynamic. I just felt that some of the performance was a little bit overdetermined. Great. So that is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and it's going to be on Netflix on December eighteenth. Is that correct? Yep. So um, check it out. Um, and that's our thoughts on it. The next film we're going to review is Il Mia Corpo um, by Michele Panetta. Uh, Steph, why don't you tell us a little bit about the film? Um, so Il Mio Corpo is a documentary film that pretty much explores the lives of a, of a young boy called Oscar. He's from quite a dysfunctional family setting and helps his father kind of scrap metal forage because um, um, they're quite poverty stricken in this regional Sicily and that's how they can earn some money quite quickly. So and also within the, the same documentary, we follow the same path of poverty and uncertainty with another character called Stanley, who's a Nigerian refugee, who's also earning little money from his job on a farm, as well as assisting the priest of his local church. Um, the common kind of denominator between these two characters is they both dream of having a better, more prosperous life in Italy, which has been denied to them. Um, Jim, what did you think of the film? Um, well, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about what sort of what sort of film this is. Um, putting that to one side for a moment until we've kind of got other opinions on it. I, I like this a lot. Um, I liked quite a lot of the imagery that gets conjured up. Like even in the in the opening few minutes, there's just there's something that's quite I know poetic about. You know, they, so they find a statue of the Virgin Mary amongst kind of like this all this stuff that they're salvaging, and there's something just quite poetic about it being dragged up to the the bridge that their you know their truck is at, upside down, you know, hanging kind of like awkwardly, and things like that. There's just there's a lot of little things like that which are you know really quite you know I I find really quite engaging. Um, I think if I have any criticism about it, it's probably I'm never convinced. I'm not convinced that the two strands with um, Oscar and Stanley uh, come together particularly well. And uh, there is one moment where they do, where it's 
it's pretty contrived um and i'm not sure how well it works for what the film is is trying to do um having said that i think it looks great a lot of the imagery it cooks up as i've said i i found really quite something and it's a i found it a very good film to just kind of like let its tone wash over you um you know and like not necessarily find some sort of point to hook on to um which is why i'm not particularly bothered by the idea that these two strands didn't come together or show as many parallels thematically as maybe i i would have hoped for um because there's a lot of very good looking stuff that i think makes enough of a tonal point that it's it works very well and it, it's kind of you feel like there's a little bit of a comment on kind of and loneliness when you find yourself in the sort of scenario that really the characters do and the way that you can find yourself with that sort of emotion regardless of whether you've got people around you or not um like that's the that's the one only one thing that i think maybe came through to me uh whether i was meant to get other stuff i don't know um but i don't, wouldn't say i particularly did so I, I i got a lot out of the film but i would be lying if i said it maybe came together and hit home as much as I was maybe expecting at the outset. Yeah, I kind of like this a lot less than I think everybody else will. Um, I found I found it quite tedious in part. And I think it I think it's partly to do with the note that Jim just said about its poeticisms. And I don't know if anybody else here saw Lauro, uh, the uh, Sorrentino film which ends with a note that is kind of uh, analogous to something that happens here with the marble statue of the Virgin Mary. In Lauro, it felt like an enormous crutch and like a, an easy way to end a film about moral degradation. Here, it feels kind of purposelessness. It has a kind of purposelessness, um, especially when you consider that the only connection with Stanley is that he works in a church. And it's hinting at this in the title too, which is Il Mio Corpo, which has a a Catholic ring to it but I found the film kind of has these scenes it's a it's a hybrid dog so we need to chat about how that specifically works and that there are scenes which are very obviously lightly scripted retellings stagings of something that these characters have actually been through in their lives that's something as well are they characters are they social actors are they subjects they're kind of a mixture of the of the two um and I think, for instance, the chat around Oscar's dinner table with the father, I found that just pretty directly a piece of drama, whereas there are shots that are just directly documentary, like them riding the bikes, like Stanley, um, you know, picking blueberries in the farm. And I don't think Panetta really found a way to integrate the two together in a way, which with a couple of films I'll be talking about in another segment, which have docu-fictional elements in them, they really do manage to integrate those two things together. And a film which will be out soon called um, uh, Bloody Nose Empty Pockets, which really manages to get the two modes, if they are separate, which I'm not sure that they totally are, all documentaries have staging, etc. But I, I did find this slightly tedious. And also, again, the word I'm going to use quite a few times today, over-determined way that the two stories eventually come together, which is just pure fiction added to these two separate stories, which I found slightly ham-fisted. I guess I didn't have any um, knowledge that it was a, you know, a hybrid doc. You know, I just went into this without, without doing any research. 
And, um, you know, the first thought I had was, wow, this is completely staged. It's not only gorgeous, it's just completely like a staged documentary. And, you know, I, you know, as pretty as that is, I, you know, don't mind, you know, a, you know, a gritty documentary that, you know, potentially has like bad, you know, bad shots in it. So I, I couldn't almost tell whether or not sometimes it was of, you know, a, a beautiful, film you know that has a documentary style to it or an you know an actual documentary um and found it hard not to believe that it was a fiction film um and i i kind of i hearken in a bit to um the film fire at sea i don't know if anyone saw that film mm -hmm. uh, but uh that's also like about sicilian lampedusa and more about um the refugee crisis and whatnot but you know I, I guess it just it, it's one of those things where it's like it's very beautiful it's very like poetic but I it didn't really I did feel though all those staged elements and it, it actually didn't speak to me as much as I wanted it to and um you know I think it's maybe that I'm I find myself interested in certain documentaries that aren't just about ly lyrical quiet <laughs> documentaries and you know but but are you know are different different models of it. So I'm I'm keen to hear the ones you're you're recommending, so that I could learn more about this hybrid doc drama new phenomena. Or maybe it's not new, but you know it was um it it, it was something that I guess I applaud it for the fact that it's something different than I've never seen, and it certainly mm. was quite gorgeous. Um, but I didn't it didn't re like it wasn't something that I was you know, I, I, I was expecting to like as much as I, I've liked other films. Yeah, and just in terms of its beauty too, there are times when it feels, again, very studied. There are shots with a lot of um, chiaroscuro lighting that feel borrowed almost from the films of Pedro Costa, who is a major kind of hybrid doc person or lightly fictionalized retellings in a documentary style. Um, particularly of the meeting when uh, Stanley and Oscar do meet, there's this very beautiful, but at the same time, could, I could feel it being lifted. I could see it being lifted from In Vanda's Room or Colossal Youth or one of Pedro Costa's films. So I feel like it's in the same way that it hasn't, the film hasn't quite managed to work out a way to be, to gesture both the documentary and at fiction and combine the two. It hasn't quite found a way to sort out its influences in a way that doesn't feel overly determined. Again, I'm going to use that word quite a few times. Yeah. You know, I, I... You know, I really, really like this documentary. Um, I, I was looking up the, the translation of Il Mio Corpo um, on Google to try and, because I think it is quite a difficult one to digest because it's so different in the way that it's shot. So depending on the source, it, um, it was always a bit different, but the one similarity between the translations is that suddenly it means something to do with the body more accurately, it's my body, is the, the, I think is a direct translation. Um, I think this, the title kind of helps to summarize the intentions behind the making of the documentary. It, it's, very, it's a very physical exploration of the subject, which is unusual for documentary films because they normally flow in a much more conversational fashion. Um, to me, Panetta does something quite revolutionary within this documentary because I haven't seen anything that's been directed this way before. So. I, and I did find it effective. I, I think that's the, with documentaries, it's, it's strange how we all find, we all take different, something different from it. 
but um it's almost like a, you kind of feel like a fly on the wall the way that he directs this and you kind of are really immersed in people's lives and how how they live and it flows and it does flow like a fictional film I think what we can deduce from it is that he has taken the stories of Oscar and Stanley letting them kind of recreate their lives in real time I think the problem with this is that it does lend itself unavoidably times towards a, fic- a fictional discourse however I'm not sure you know we can make that assertion holistically whether it's appropriate because it due to the fact that kind of there has been there has been evidence that there has kind of been a backseated approach to it but obviously when you go into the poeticisms there there has been tampering with the narrative for sure but I do like how the kind of real human problems that we see kind of subtly intertwined within these two stories from two people of different relatively different walks of life within similar circumstances and there's almost kind of an unwithering sense of trust that you kind of have with these stories on screen because it, it, it feels authentic, even when obviously there are parts of it that are scripted because they have been recreated or um, things like that. And I think that it's one of those documentaries that you feel kind of instantly connected with and mystified by the narrative. Um, one of the main obstacles I think documentary films face is whether an audience can imagine the realities of a life so different to their own. And this documentary allows you to kind of walk with these people and experience their daily life as they recall it. It's very powerful and it, to me, it breaks the fourth wall in a way that many documentaries fail to do. from a focus on more of the informative like discourse and the emotional simulation of these kind of metaphysical differences between borders. But, um, so to me, it resonated quite, quite strongly in what I was going to do. Um, I do, I do agree and disagree at the same time. I do think that obviously the way it was shot, you know, there are, there are going to be much that is scripted that you're not quite sure what has been inserted for the purpose of style, um, stylism or what has kind of been contingent. So there is a problem with films that are made like that. But I, I have to say that I really did enjoy it. I, I loved it. I have to be honest. If I did, If I hadn't been told this was a documentary, I wouldn't have thought it was a documentary. That's it. And it, it, it reminded me a little bit of segments of like, so somebody I interviewed for the show like quite a long time ago now, um, documentary of the Islands of the Hungry Ghosts, right? And it had these staged elements. And what was quite interesting about it was in that case, it had these bits that were very, very obviously documentary. Like it had some, you know, like talking head segments. It had these kind of like pseudo staged elements in like a, um, a therapist's office, right? But it was very. It was quite easy to differentiate between those segments. Like the approach that's been taken with the Omeo Corpo is almost that the segments there in that film I saw, which were very obviously staged. To me, it feels like the entire film is made up of those segments. And uh, the, unlike Mark, there were bits of it where, in all honesty, I think you could show it. If I hadn't been told beforehand it was a documentary, I would have associated some of the shots with being done in a docu, like a verity documentary style, rather than it being a documentary so where you end up categorizing this i don't really know i enjoyed the film how much of it you can really claim as documentary i i i I don't know and obviously like you know we've got a documentary filmmaker here who probably has like opinions on this but i i like the film i liked what it captured whether it was capturing reality different question yeah i mean i think that's exactly it if you 
I guess maybe I knew it was a documentary and I didn't actually know that it was a hybrid um, and, you know, and that's, and maybe need to do more research into like what hybrid documentary, you know, um, films are apart from like the act of killing. And I was thinking like the stories we tell, um, mm. I then, I then would have, if you had said, this is a fiction film that used real people mm. and the real actors playing themselves kind of in the tradition of like Iranian cinema and whatnot, um, I would, you know, I, I maybe would have responded differently to that. So maybe it was just like the definition of it that was, that was, um, but also to make those stylistic decisions or those things f for style and maybe like, you know, be putting this together as, as a documentary filmmaker, it kind of, it, it doesn't, you know, it, it, it doesn't maybe resonate with me, but, you know, if it was a fiction film that was docu-style that, Maybe it would have. I don't know. Yeah, um, like, you know. Yeah, like I feel that I don't know. I don't know what you folks say, but I mean, to me, watching this, it feels like a very. It would be a very short hop in in terms of kind of like content, the way it's done. To me, it feels like a very short hop from here to like a recent Ken Loach film. Like that. Like to me, in terms of style and. You know, I think this is, like this is more poetic than like some of like, you know, like Loach's recent stuff. But that that same idea of like using real people or like very inexperienced actors to capture a situation in a story, I'm not saying it's the same for one second, but I do feel like it's a very small gap between the two, to be honest. And I, it, it does blur the lines. Um, I think it blurs the lines in a very visually arresting way, I would say, for me. But it does it, it, it does, it does, offer up questions about what, what is the film trying to achieve? Because if it's trying to document something, I, I, I don't know. I think you could argue that it maybe, it maybe doesn't, but then is it going for capturing kind of a, a tone, a feeling, a truth of a situation rather than specific events um i don't know i mean i haven't managed i haven't looked up any interviews with the director i'd be interested to see what they described it as and what they were going for um because I, I i did enjoy it i i got a lot out of it but where exactly it's positioning itself in terms of the story it's telling i'm not gonna lie it is confusing to me i guess if if it if i had had an innate excitement through the film for whatever reason and i like subtle quiet films and i like films that you know don't have much dialogue um but if there had been something that had really really resonated with me then i probably wouldn't be asking these questions so much i would just leave it as is and like mm -hmm. definitionless and whatnot as we've talked about on this whole podcast so it was just that it was pretty um <laughs> Yeah, and well. clearly staged, you know, <laughs> like they're the, the in that that's my impression. Oh yeah, I mean there there are bits that are shot like a drama, like the dinner table conversation for me. I mean that that, that is a hundred percent staged. Yeah, there there are two there are two camera setups having a contiguous conversation, yeah. but I think we should really cover um, Buddy Knows Empty Pockets next month because that I'll say nothing more about it because I might like uh, over overemphasize its position but that would be a fascinating one to have this kind of conversation about but i think does uh does its job far more interestingly well we'll pause this table it and take it into next month then um 
And uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing that. It's, it's like your challenge project again. So um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> here we go. So it's now this part of the show where we, um, as uh, you know, as very closely tied to the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, we'd like to highlight and um, of short films that you can see hopefully online um, that uh, we recommend. And so I will go around and see uh, Mark. Why don't you go first and let us know what short film you you recommend? Sure thing. So this is the second time in doing the short films that I'm going to recommend a film by the same director, but I think you'll you'll see the replenishing reasons why I've chosen this. Um, it's called The Anthem. It's directed by a feature poem, We Are Cetical. And it's the Thai filmmaker in a typically generous mode. It's a five minute long short, which has this beautiful piece of music in it, kind of very boppy pop song, which is just called The Anthem which is by an artist referred to as James in the Digesis, but his name is uh, Chaibavon Silukwa. And the film is a typically kind of drifty, languorous, uh, long-take cinema. A picture film is normally associated with international small art cinema. He sets up this kind of askew shot of a group of women sitting on a bench. Uh, they're kind of sorting out mangoes between them. One of them says that they have got this new CD and they have had it blessed and it's going to radiate its energy out to wherever they direct it. And the shot continues for a couple of minutes and then it cuts while the music starts. This, as I say, like very boppy, energetic song. It cuts to the inside of a gym hall in which a couple of Apichapong mainstay activities, namely a step dance class is happening. Um, and the camera with uh, the tracks revealed, the lighting setups all in front of the camera as opposed to behind it. The camera does a couple of 360 degree laps of the gym hall while A, a couple of people are playing badminton on a badminton court. On the same badminton court, the women who were sitting on the benches are peeling mangoes again, but as I say, in the badminton court. And people around the gym hall are climbing jungle bars and doing step dance classes, all the while the camera's doing this amazing like lap, like it's doing laps in a, a, like a gym class. It's extremely funny and very typically generous, as I mentioned, for Peach Pong, who always likes letting a viewer in on the magic in some way and opening up the frame in a kind of democratic way. And I just find it extremely um, uplifting and energetic. And although he's usually associated with kind of like austere art cinema, I, that's just not how I see him. And I think this film would be a lovely introduction to his work for someone. Sounds wild and fun. So I mm -hmm. definitely want to see it. Thanks for that. Um, Steph, why don't you uh, recommend your short film? Um, so to keep in theme with um, tonight's in Sophia, I've chosen a short which is like a documentary short so um, while we're getting into all the, the, the docudramas and the um, documentary concert film things um, this is um, it's called Little Potato so it already sounds amazing but it's um, pretty much about uh, this, this is an autobiographical biographical um film by um Wes Hurley and um Nathan Miller but it's um 
it's only about um, West Hurley's life. So it's basically him growing up in, in Russia um, during kind of the fall of the USSR and, and things like that. And kind of the growing pains of growing up um, growing up gay and, and later finding that out in life. But um, so it's kind of the contrast between, you know, heaven he kind of was raised in a very abusive home with his dad and it's his mom's kind of it's like a journey between the two of them how they kind of make it through in russia and how to survive the, the problems within the state and then it, it takes a really interesting turn so it, it goes from um his mother's kind of fears of him being recruited and um, for the military in that time to then her her um idea for an escape is to kind of advertise herself as a mail order bride to um, move to, to relocate to America and to try and have a semblance of, I suppose, a, a normal life or, you know, I think a Western life, or at least um, with all that idealism, idealism involved in it. And it, it's a really touching, a really touching short, actually. It develops in ways that you can't imagine, you know, they kind of move over to a man that kind of seems to be very orthodox heavy christian so it's not it's not working out quite like the american dream but it all kind of flips on its head it's a really um it's a really interesting um documentary to a documentary short to watch i think especially in the current climate um you will find it on um short of the week but um it's quite far back so just pop it in the search bar and it should come up We'll send a link on as well in the anchor so that people can check it out as well. So, Jim, what's your short of the week of the month? Um, well, my, mine is far less um, chaotic and weighted. Like it, it's quite light. <laughs> it's quite light. Um, so, I, I, I've been wanting to recommend it for a while, but I wanted to make sure it was available online before I did so. And I, th- I'm trying to remember where I saw it. Right, um, and I think it was at the Edinburgh Short Film Festival last year, but I think it played Independence in the city as well. Um, so the one I've gone for is um, the Traffic Separating Device um, by Johan Palmgren, and basically it it follows like the installation of this. I, I think it's called a bus trap, right? Uh, in I think it's Stockholm. Uh, it's somewhere in Sweden, anyway. I forget precisely where. And basically, it's just kind of the locals and you know Palmgren's camera observing cars trying to get past this bus trap. And you know they do horrendously. They get marooned in the middle of this device. They fall into the middle of it and scratch their paint up. They get flat tires, and like it's just all these ridiculous, idiotic ways that people try to get around it or ignore the signage. Or and it's just it's one of these things where it doesn't need to do anything to just be really quite funny and just to get how people will just kind of ignore it and think, no, I can make it. We'll do it. I'll, I, you know, it's, it's no problem. It's really quite funny. It's about 15 minutes long, I think, uh, you know, and it talks to some of the locals who kind of go on about how people have tried to get around it and how idiotic some of it is. And it's just, it's just a good fun watch, but it's, it's, it's done in this kind of this very dry Scandinavian way, which I think will kind of appeal to a lot of people. Um, so yeah, no, I, we'll, we'll put a link up to it, but yes, that's the, the traffic separating device by Johan Palmgren. Is it a documentary? Yeah. 
Oh, right. Okay. That's what I gathered. I, yeah. And there, there's no stage, but it's, it's concretely a documentary. It starts off with, like, I think it's the, the city chamber, like, you know, in order to improve bus accessibility, they pass a degree where this thing needs to be installed. And then it just, it starts to show kind of like just the, the complete lack of being able to cope with it, <laughs> frankly, that the locals have. Also sounds, yeah, something like, yeah, something I would like to see. Well, my film is not a documentary at all, but it could be a documentary of my life because it's uh, my the, the the thing I fear most is uh, getting attacked by a squirrel. So uh, the the short film is um, <laughs> Satan has a bushy tail, and it's uh, by a a Scottish filmmaker who he was in London for quite some time, and and I did an interview with him, which you'll hear afterwards. Um, uh, but you can find his films on louispaxson.com and we were introduced to him through the Shortcom Film Festival, which like primarily works on, you know, shows short films that are um, comedies. And I have to say this was hilarious, but also just because I've quite possibly had many run-ins with squirrels and thought my life was going to end. Um, but it's it's amusing because it's about um, a father and a, and a well, uh, yeah, a, fa a father and a son father who's aging who's lost his uh his wife and uh you know is 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 very is very much thinks that the squirrel is a reincarnation of his mortal nemesis who is 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 going to attack them and it does so it's it's hilarious it's it's short 15 minutes but um i highly recommend it it's it's also sweet too so it's a nice way of uh, his films kind of encapsulate humor but also um, you know, f f like like sweet empathy. Um, you know, similar to the the things like Jojo Rabbit reminds me a bit of as well. So um, yeah, I I highly recommend that. We'll put a link, and uh, right after our break, we will go to um, that interview. Okay, so I'm back with uh, Louis Paxton, who is a writer, director, and uh, his latest film, Neville is Dead, is part of the Shortcom um, Film Festival, also premiered at the Glasgow Short Film Festival. Louis, thank you for taking the time to chat with us thank today. You. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Right. So uh, w tell me a little bit about your career. Um, it seems like uh, you're very, very much involved with comedy um, filmmaking. Uh, what, what got you into making films in, in this genre? Uh, I think originally it was me, me and my friends uh, when we were young, um, used to kind of just muck around with cameras. We actually, I think the first time I got a camera was probably around about like early 2000s when uh, Jackass and CKY and all of these kind of things were coming out. And I, I was just, you know, obsessed with that and I, I you know me and my mates tried to do stunts realized that none of us really had the guts to do any stunts and so we kind of just made sketches um and that's kind of where I learned to edit as well where I'd sort of we, we would all you know shoot sketches and crap stunts and kind of put them together and um we yeah, I think we just realized we liked making people laugh and I particularly realized that I loved kind of crafting jokes and um I guess that that would be the first the, the first sort of go I had at it. Um, then I kind of, I didn't do great at school. Um, so I kind of, 
immediately after graduating, wasn't really sure what to do. I was working at the film house at the time in Edinburgh um, as an usher. And it was either continue sort of being an usher at the film house, uh, which was a great job, actually. It was, you know, one of the few cinemas in Scotland that still has ushers in the cinema. So I got to see so many amazing, you know, films from all over the world. Um, but it was either continue doing that or, you know, really have a go at filmmaking. So I applied to uh, for an HNC at uh, Telford College uh, in sort of TV operations and production. Um, you know, I, again, sort of made really daft comedies there, but then kind of managed to sort of pull together a short from a grad film, which then got me into a course at the, what was the RSCMD, which is now the Conservatoire in Glasgow. Um, and that was great because that kind of, I, I, you know, I just got access to loads of kit. I got to meet collaborators. I got to meet actors as well, which was fab. And uh, we just kind of, you know, I made as much as I could whilst I was there. And then my graduation film there kind of had the same effect. You know, it, it, it was a, God, it was a dancing, it was, it was a, a, a musical horror about a dancing plague inspired by the uh, dancing plague of Strasbourg in the, I think it was the 1500s or something like that. Um, and it's just like this really fun kind of zombie film, but all the zombies are dancing. So you can still, I've still got that actually. It's, it's uh, it, but it did me really well. It kind of, it got me into um, a couple of festivals. We won an RTS award for it. And uh, eventually it got me into my master's course at the NFTS. Um, and that was, you know, that, that was a real step up for me. I got to focus on um, directing purely. It was a directing course. Um, and I met loads of great collaborators there. Um, and over the course of the couple of years there, you know, I made a few shorts, some of them, you know, we, we got, the resources we had were incredible. We got a lot to work with. Um, I would say some of the stuff I made there, uh, you know, it was great to try different things. And I, you know, it was great to try things of a different scale. I think I kind of lost my way a bit as well. I think I became quite, um, disconnected from where I'd come from and the kind of comedy that I used to make. Um, but then, you know, after graduation, I had to focus much more on writing and sort of over the past, you know, since, but it was a while ago since I graduated, it was like eight, eight years ago, maybe. Um, but in that time since I've, you know, I've you know, concentrated much more on writing and brought it back together. And now I think Neville is dead, which is the film, you know, you've seen this in Short Call, um, is really bringing back is kind of bringing together both sides of of that so it's got like my, my old influences it's made in edinburgh it's made with you know some of the collaborators i i made films with before i kind of went down south uh, but it's also taken the professionalism and i think the more refined sort of storytelling uh, that i learned down south and kind of bringing the two together um yeah, yeah. so that's <laughs> in a nutshell that's kind of the past 15, 20 years. <laughs> wow. Well, absolutely. I love, I actually, I love that film, uh, Neville's Dead. And, um, you know, it made me think a little bit of like Jojo Rabbit in terms of, you know, the, the, the but wondering if you had sort of particular influences on your stuff. I also really love the colors. And like you said, you know, being filmed, I didn't know it was filmed near Edinburgh, but it definitely felt like a Scottish location and by the sea. Um, yeah. Really, really beautiful using the landscape, but also like great colors and stuff. Uh, tell me a little bit about that that film, your influences and whatnot. Um, so the film was, uh, it was me and Grant were keen. Grant's the actor and um, co-producer and uh, co-writer as well. And me and Grant had worked on stuff when we were younger. He was in Coriomania, the Dancing Plague film. We also made a film called Pouncer, which um, I'm still hugely proud of. It's this mockumentary. And we just really enjoyed working together. Um, 
you know, we make each other laugh. And we we kind of got together once I'd moved back to Edinburgh and said, you know, let's try and make something. He was very keen to make something with his son as well, who hadn't acted. So Louis is his actual son. Um, so the, the lead in it is uh, is Louis O'Rourke, his Grant O'Rourke's son. Um, who interestingly, uh, Grant, I remember when we were in Pouncer, Grant came to me one day whilst we were shooting Pouncer, which is the last film we made, and said um, that uh, Kira, uh, his partner, was pregnant. And so the, the two times that we'd worked with each other in between was, you know, he'd had, uh, he did a child. Um, so it was lovely. It was just like bringing everything sort of full circle and working with Louis again. Um, you know, he, he was he was he was he was great. And as soon as I met Louis, I was just like, I really want to work with him. And he's, he's really funny and um, so natural. Um, and so it just the whole thing kind of seemed like a great idea. And we started talking and we got this idea that like we were talking about. He was saying that Louis had an imaginary friend um, who died after two days. So he had like an imaginary friend for a very short period of time. Um, and then we started talking about imaginary friends. And I remember a story my mum told me about her father um, who had said, her brother, sorry, who had an imaginary friend who was actually abusive to him, who was, and my, um, my granddad had to like ritualistically burn him. He had to, they had to put him in a fireplace so that they could say, you know, he's gone, he's not gonna bother you anymore. Um, and I, I guess like everything I've seen about imaginary friends has always been kind of quite lighthearted. And I wanted to see some, like even Jojo Rabbit, which was definitely an influence on this as well. Um, because I love Taika Waititi's stuff, you know, I, I adore it. But, and Drop Dead Fred as well was another one I was thinking of, but I kind of felt like even though people had, had tackled imaginary friends, I wanted to see something that was kind of a bit, um, that, that looked at like how, how kind of dark kids can be without really knowing it. Um, you know, the, the sort of, the, 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 the idea that when you're a young, when you're a young kid, I remember getting to an age where I just like smashed all of my action men and I was obsessed with having, I was obsessed with my action men. I had loads of toys. And I remember getting to that age where it was like, I destroyed everything. And I kind of, I don't, it's like that kind of building a snowman and then destroying it. Like there's, there was something kind of destructive about being a kid and the idea of kind of, um, having to destroy something to kind of move forward um, and to grow. And then we kind of talked about why that might be. And we were looking at, you know, relationship with fathers and the whole thing just sort of like sort of went from there. Um, but we just loved this idea of this kid. We, we thought it was really funny, but we also thought it was really sweet. And I think that was something we both agreed on, me and Grant, was we wanted to tell a story that was funny, but was also moving as well because I think we've done stuff before we've shown that we can be funny and you know I, I think it's uh I think it's difficult to do comedy but I think it's really difficult to do comedy that people care about and that people remember and that people connect with um, and so that's kind of what we were aiming to do with this was something that you know really made you laugh but also made you feel something beyond that as well um, so in terms of influences I suppose like definitely Taika Waititi um, you know, I did look a lot at Hunt for the Wilder People and the I love the way he frames things really awkwardly sometimes. And I think he gives stuff loads of space, but there's also kind of a, a sort of playfulness to it. Um, I think also, you know, a, a big influence on me when I was growing up was, was Shane Meadows stuff. So like Room for Romeo Brass and uh, Dead Man's Shoes. Um, God, what else? I mean, sort of broadly speaking, going back, there's like there's Monty Python, John Waters. There's like, uh, I think particularly with this film though, it was, 
yeah, there was a lot of Taika Waititi more recently anyway. Um, what else? What else could I? What else could I say about? Uh, what, what else would you want to ask about Neville's dead specifically? Yeah, well, I mean, also just um, you know, looking at your career, you've had quite a f you've done quite a few shorts. Um, is that uh, is that a format that you in really enjoy? And I know that you are working on some features and some 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 stuff for um, for for TV, but uh, it, it really like the, both the films that I saw of yours, Neville's Dead and then Satan Has a Bushy Tail really are, are, are like beautifully crafted stories within 15 minutes. And, and I think they, they work so well. And like you said, so natural. Um, is, is short something that you're really, um, really passionate about or is it kind of part of like your trajectory um, as a filmmaker? Um, I think I think it's both. Um, I'm definitely passionate about them. I think I think it's funny. Like I, when I write shorts, like it, both Neville is Dead and Satan as a Bushy Tail, I actually wrote very quickly. Um, whilst I did co-write um, Neville is Dead, we went away and did the work together. But actually, the, the actual typing up of the script was like very. It really didn't take that long. I mean, obviously it's 15 pages, but the shape of it was very apparent. And I think this, it was the same with Satan as Bushy Tail. And that's what's great about shorts, I suppose, is that sometimes you can just see the whole thing really, really clearly. Um, or I can. Um, in terms of, like, I, I, lo I love doing them. Um, I suppose you don't make any money from them, that's the thing. I did go a long period of not making shorts, though, and, you know, I was working on TV work, which was great, but you're kind of constantly developing treatments or you're writing scripts, and you can end up, development is, you know, I, I do really enjoy development, but it is frustrating in that sometimes you just want, especially if you're in comedy, you just want to get it in front of someone and see them laugh and kind of know that it's working. And the great thing about a short and short film festivals is that you can go and do that. Um, unfortunately, not this year because we're not seeing, you know, we're not in rooms with audiences, but um, it's still it's still been great. You know, the online festivals that I've been involved in have, have been fantastic. And you get feedback and you connect with people, you know, over social media, which is lovely. But it, there is something about short films that, especially with comedy, I think is it, it, it's supposed to be seen, you know, and it's, it's supposed to be a kind of, communal activity and it's supposed to be something that you you enjoy in groups of people um, and I think I I, I I do like I do like to continue to make shorts you know to see that to get that reaction um, and I think you know it's I think you also get to a point where you make uh, or I have anyway where I've made a couple of shorts that were better funded and then you feel like you want to continue. You want to continue, kind of making better-funded shorts. But actually, there's something really freeing about going back and making something on a lower budget. With Neville is dead, we we made that on a well, Satan as a Bushy Tail was the shot I made before that, four or five years before, was funded through Film London, and we also did a crowdfunder for it. So we had you know pretty decent budget for it. With Neville is dead, we just put a bit of our own money together, and then we went and kind of blagged all the locations and stuff. And I, I don't know. I feel like there it almost looks better, and it has a more a friend of mine, um, Sam Barron, who who's another filmmaker who I, who I really like to um, sort of, we, we, you know, we're good, we're good mates, but we talk about our work with each other. And I showed him an early cut of Neville is Dead, and he said, this has just got this brilliant kind of improvised quality. Um, and I think I think if it if it does have that, it's because we did we we had a much smaller crew than we had on other stuff. I think we were, we felt maybe more free to be a bit more playful, and I think. I think it benefits from that. So I'd hope to continue to make shorts like that because I, there's something really refreshing about them, you know, just going off and kind of making something and, um, you know, gauging the, get, getting, 
I think editing it myself as well, like I did the effects on it, um, which I don't think, you know, I think anyone who does effects would look at them and go, they're pretty kind of crude. But for me, there was something great about just doing it in a room and watching YouTube tutorials and kind of teaching myself to do it. Um, it really put me back in touch with, you know, the filmmaking, the kind of filmmaking I used to do when I first started, like me and my friends and, you know, editing on Final Cut Pro and just kind of doing the whole thing yourself. It was, it was great, you know. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, it's fantastic to hear, but, you know, from someone who didn't know that, just looked at the production value and the quality and said, wow, that's a really highly produced and well-made short. Um, so it's it's really interesting to see what, what can be done, obviously, these days on a lower budget with, but it, it involves experience and also talent, of course. Well, yeah, and a lot of that is down to David Little, who's the, the, the cinematographer. Uh, who's worked with my sister quite a lot, Ruth Paxton, and, uh, and loads of other people in Scotland. He's, he's just an incredibly talented DP and, and, and really thoughtful and comes from a place of story. He's, he's a very, very clever um, sort of filmmaker from that point of view. And I think he did a terrific job considering, you know, the, the resources he had to work with. Uh, but we also knew, you know, we made decisions early on, like we knew we didn't have a huge amount of money. So we thought, well, because a lot of it's set outside, then we just find the best locations we, we can. And, you know, I grew up in Edinburgh and we would go every weekend, we would just go to the beach um, and we would kind of go out to East Lothian and there's so many beautiful spots out there. So we kind of just, like the tank traps are things that were like a big part of my kind of childhood landscape playing around on those big concrete blocks, you know? Um, and so we just kind of went out and, 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 and utilized all of those locations and maybe, and also just like abandoned farms and things like that. These were all things I remember from, from growing up. And I guess that the, it just seemed like a, a great way to get production value, but also to have, you know, this interesting kind of landscape for this kid to run around in as well. Um, so no, it's great that you thought that anyway, that it looked good. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm curious because you, like you, you said you you started in Edinburgh. You did you went to film school. Um, you worked in London, or um, what? You know, what is the difference, and why do you? You're back in Glasgow. How do you feel about working in Scotland versus working in Lon a, a large film epicenter like London? And why? You know, do, do you prefer either or? I think I prefer um, how much more affordable it is <laughs> to live up here. Um, you know, I don't have to work three jobs to just pay enough, three part-time jobs to just pay enough to be able to, to sort of, to, to, to exist, which I did in London. It was really difficult. Um, I, I, I feel like now that I'm back, I've been more productive than I was the last few years in, in, in London as well. And I think a lot of that is because I've a little bit, I've got a little bit more, freedom I'm you know I'm, I'm still working part-time but I'm kind of able to it's much more it's, it's much more related to film so I tutor as well and it, it gives me a lot more time to to actually write and I think my writing has been better as well because I've I don't know moving back and just sort of I had to live you know moving with my family um, when I first moved back and then you know COVID happened and there was a lockdown but actually it was a really positive experience you know I got to spend a lot of time with um with my my parents and my sister and I think um that was really beneficial and it helped me just again kind of reconnect with the kind of stuff I wanted to write and the kind of stuff I wanted to make so I've got a project at the moment which is a tv show and it's you know a lot a lot of it when the lead characters are a group of uh, sort of young kids who are all shooting movies in and about the in and about the woods when they find this sort of body and again this is like going back to 
the kind of stuff I was doing when I first started with my mates and, and teenage, you know, as, as being teenagers and kind of running around Edinburgh um, with cameras. So it's, it's, I think it's really helped, you know, it's, although I loved London, I really did, but um, it's, it's just so expensive to live there, you know, and you're not making huge amounts of money. I'm, I'm earning a living, but I'm not making enough to, you know, to, to be able to do it full time in London, uh, certainly. But up here, I, I, I do have that, that option, I suppose, which is good. Absolutely. And I felt that, I mean, as a documentary filmmaker, I lived in New York for 15 years. Um, yeah. The amount of like other things to do and things you need to do, you almost don't, aren't able to take advantage of all of those, those, those things while you're trying to, to work, yeah. but giving and working and living in Edinburgh gives me more space to, to really, to work creatively. But um, yeah. I also was curious about Satan as a bushy deal. You were mentioning how Neville is dead has a very kind of, you know, true like you know stories that you've learned i've 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 had many of a run-in with a, a demonic squirrel to be honest in new yeah. york so i particularly found that to be a horror film but a really funny one as well and um that and birds but uh yeah i was wondering um you know how that came about as well oh well that's quite a, that is a funny story so that my granddad um who uh died last year was uh just obsessed with this bird feeder in his back garden and we sort of came in one day and he had like uh, a gutty what we call a gutty which was a, a catapult like a slingshot and then um, we were like what's what's that for and he said it's for the squirrel and he said it very seriously you know and we went what squirrel he went the squirrel that steals the the nuts um, so these nuts he'd put out but he, these are nuts that were for the birds they weren't for the squirrel and um, so he was very specific about that it was like he wasn't feeding squirrels he was feeding birds you know but he had a gutty and he had all kinds of like, he, my granddad was a bit like that. He had lots of um, like torches and knives and just things he bought. And he wasn't like a violent man in any way. He was a very sweet man, but he liked things and he liked kind of like uh, kit and tools and stuff. And he had all this stuff that he never used. But I just love the idea of uh, an older guy kind of using it to... Um, using using all of these tools to sort of like pursue this vendetta and I think a big influence for that now I'm thinking about it was Mouse Hunt as well which I just love the Gory Verbinski film and um, I just loved that so much when I was growing up and I wanted to do something that was kind of slapstick um, and I also I guess was interested in writing about my grandparents and writing about you know, at the time you know he when my granddad and my, my gran were both um we're both around but it was it was I remember thinking you know if my granddad my, my grand just looked after him she was she was fantastic um but I remember thinking you know he would he would be completely useless if he was on his own you how he, I don't know how he would look after himself and so I can that's kind of where the story started for but but um no it was his his sort of personal vendetta against squirrels in particular and then once I started doing research I found all this stuff like you say I've never personally been attacked by a squirrel but a lot of people have apparently and I remember we got one, we had to get a real squirrel on set um, and she was called Harriet and she was more expensive than any of the actors. Like, I think we paid 800 pounds for half a day with Harriet and her trainer. And her trainer was great because she sort of like, we were speaking to her beforehand and she said, um, so what do you need the squirrel to do? And it was like, well, you know, we need to run across frame and we maybe you need to do this, but we'd built puppets and things like that. So we had all this other stuff for the really, you know, complex squirrel action. But she was like, <laughs> She turned up on the day and we sort of, she sort of said, we said, so, you know, we're asking us, it's a trained squirrel. She said, well, 
you know, within reason, they have very small brains. You can't, you can't actually train them. So basically we had peanut butter and it would go where peanut butter was. We had this stick that we took it. But I remember she, she had it kind of on her chest, sort of clung on her chest like that at one point and it was sort of quivering and she showed its claws and they were huge. They're really, I mean, that's how they climb trees and buildings, I suppose, but there were these big curved sort of like scythe-like, they were like mini velociraptor claws. They were huge. And um, I remember thinking like, if that attacked you, I'd be really, so I do think differently about squirrels now. And whenever I see one, sometimes they get a bit close. And I remember that in London, but I've seen so many videos because I did research of like people getting attacked by squirrels that now like it's obviously a real issue, you know? Yeah, I had a really big window in um, in my apartment in New York. And one time I was just left it open. It was a really hot day and like, you know, took a nap. And then there was one like in my room and I was just like, oh, the this is the end of the world, you know, just so like yeah. that moment. And yeah, when they're like, yeah, it was just reliving a lot of fears I've, I've had over the years. It's like, it's, like, it's like when a bird gets in your house, there's something just so wrong about it. And yet it's like the bird has no, no clue what's going on, but it's the same with a squirrel. It's like, this is wrong. This is, this is reverse, get out, you know? And you really do panic, you know? Yeah, but, it, but also very touching. And, and I thought again, like in within a 15 minute um, time frame, just a really wonderful arc and story. So, like, we're we always highlight um, short films on this because we're we're huge, we're very passionate about short films at Cinetopia, but we always highlight one. So, this is our. I will be certainly highlighting it this this uh, oh, cool. uh, both of them um, this month. But um, yeah, so just final question. Um, you know, what's your plans? I mean, I know, like you said, COVID kind of shifted the distribution of your latest film, but um, how, you know, what's next steps and what's kind of your aspirations going forward, you know, when we all can? And have you been shooting since since uh, since it? I've not been shooting, I've been writing, which has been great. Um, so I've been writing, I actually, the, the, I, I went up to Orkney, um, which is where my some of my family are from. My mum's up there at the moment. Um, and I went up there just before the first lockdown in March, um, intending to go for a week, ended up staying for like three months and just got, Quite a lot of work done so it's great i had a feature um that i sent out and now i'm speaking to people about um getting that sort of in development and kind of going going forward and that's kind of tonally quite similar to something like neville is dead it's quite playful it's sort of set on this island um again based on you know a lot of stories that i heard when i was growing up i think you know it, I, I'm really excited about that. It's quite contained as well. So I think it's quite, it's quite doable, even, you know, with sort of COVID restrictions. Um, and then I, I also wrote a, a sort of pilot for a TV series, um, which I've got with uh, BBC Studios and that all turned around very, very quickly. And I think whilst, you know, we've maybe not been shooting as much, it, people have been really keen to read um, material and that's all moved very, very quickly. So you know, I'm just really grateful because that that's kind of kept me busy, and it's you know, it's it's kept me sort of financially stable as well, which is which has been good. Um, but I'm really open, you know, I'm really open to writing and not necessarily directing, um, especially when it comes to TV because I, you know, I adore TV, I love TV, I just I love the. I, I think some really exciting things are happening um, there, both in the UK and the US, and I'm just really, you know, I'm really keen to to get involved and and to kind of. To, to, to tell stories in that medium. Um, but at the same time, I'm still very sort of committed to, to being a writer, director as well. And, and so my feature film is kind of my primary um, 
focus in that regard. Um, but I also just wrote a horror, which is the first thing I've written, which is not uh, a comedy. And that's something I'd wanted to write for ages. And I don't think if, if it wasn't for lockdown and COVID, I don't think I would have. So in many ways, I, I'm, I've seen it as a positive creatively. It's just given me so much time to, to kind of make stuff. And I, I'm now in this position where I've got all these projects that I'm sending out and I'm getting great reactions for, and I'm just really hoping that we'll, you know, one of those will kind of push through and, and get a green light and, and get funded uh, soon. But other than that, you know, I, I don't want to go as long as I did last time without shooting something. So I do want to make another short and I, I will, you know, I think maybe early next year would be a good time to do so. Um, because I'm, you know, now I'm back here, I've got all these great people who are so talented who, you know, I really love to work with. And I, I just like to, to keep making stuff as well. And I think also it's like, it's great. I forgot that when you make a short, you become sort of part, you, you're put in touch with all the other people who are making shorts. And I think when you're writing, you can become quite isolated. And the reason I really, what I forgot about was, you know, how great it is to kind of, even though we've not been able to go to these festivals physically in person, it's been great to see other people's work. Um, and it's been great to, to kind of connect with other filmmakers. So I, I want to kind of keep doing that as well as, as, as much as I can. Um, so yeah, mostly writing, but I'm definitely going to try and shoot something pretty soon. Yeah, I mean, that's a really great point. And I mean, I also think that it's been really nice to, to see other people's work so much and, and kind of have more access to, to different kinds of work through this process as well, as well as having that development time that we've all sort of needed or wanted to do, but then, you know, maybe our schedules didn't allow us. Well, thank you so much for your time and um, really love your films and can't wait to see your feature. And, um, you know, at Cinetopia, we're really keen to showcase and and uh, Scottish talent and and whatnot. So hopefully maybe we'll be screening some of them in the future yeah. as well. So um, really appreciate your time and um, look forward to seeing you again. Thank you. So as every year, we try to uh, talk about our favorite films of the year. And I think some of us had quite discussions over, um, you know, like liking and hating, but um, I'm, I'll go first just real quick. Um, I think uh, the films that I'm picking were, were popular amongst our, our, our uh, most of us. Um, the first one I'm going to pick is Portrait of a Lady on Fire, um, which uh was a film by Celine Sciamma, um, and it was about um, a painter who comes to paint a, a woman for her wedding portrait, Eloise, and she um, and they both fall in love. So it's a really lovely, uh, beautiful tale, um, you know that that shows a love affair um, that is 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 quite unexpected but quite beautiful, and it is itself a portrait. It's quite a stunning film. Um, it's definitely been talked about a lot, and uh, certainly something that we all 100% highly recommended. Um, the second film I'm gonna pick for 2020 is Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, though I think I always messed up the title. Um, it's a film by Eliza Hittman um, and it's following one girl, Autumn, and her trip to New York City from Philadelphia to go to a Planned Parenthood clinic to terminate her pregnancy and with her cousin uh, there to help. 
Uh, but what happens, the film is a subtle and yet deeply moving account of two young women trying to survive when faced with difficult challenges and what seems to be a very cold and heartless uh, place. Uh, and it, it was really beautiful and its subtlety and um, and their determination and their acting. It was it was quite impressive. And the third I'm going to go with is uh, Les Miserables by not the Les Mis by Tom Cooper, wh whatever his name is, um, but Lajli, um, with 2019 uh, French drama, but it came out last year about the difficult life of within the Parisian suburbs or Bagnon and the commune of Montfermeil, um, but both from the perspectives of the young people um, growing up there and all the different people within that community, but also really highlighting the brutality of the police who patrol that area as well. So it. Um, I just thought it was a, a phenomenal film and, um, and, you know, portrays Paris in a way that we would not, we don't see in, in Emily in Paris, which I'm sure you've all checked out as well um, on Netflix, because I know that's your kind of, your kind of bag, but it was mine too. You're, you're not going to, you're not going to rest until you get us to watch another Netflix series. It's going to take me the entire year to recover from Tiger King. No, that's the I problem. love the Netflix series. I don't like the Netflix films. That's <laughs> one, that's my thing. Except, well, we'll talk about one. I think some one of you will talk about one I really really liked. But like generally speaking, I'm, I enjoy Netflix series, especially a really like silly one. So um, I was going to talk about Kyoshi Kurosawa's To the Ends of the Earth um, because I do think it's wonderful, but it has just left the building, so to speak. So instead, I'll go for um, Lucio Castro's film End of the Century, which is uh, begins like a kind of... Uh, Lucio Castro is an Argentine director. It begins like an Argentine remix of Andrew Hayes' Weekend, but kind of morphs into something more like a queer certified copy, which I think is a fascinating premise. Um, it's about a guy on holiday in Barcelona who forms a quick, quick quick relationship with a guy called Ocho and they, they have a one night stand and get to talking afterwards and it's revealed that they may or they might or might not have met before and then the film jumps around in time and has this amazing play with linearity that I find fascinating. A few little hints and curly cues in this style um, and I found it in the end extremely moving. Um, the second film I want to talk about is a hybrid doc way. Um, it's called Bird Island. It's directed by Maya Cosa and Sergio De Costa. And it's a film that I saw at Open City Doc Fest, but then didn't, didn't see it, um, you know, uh, soon enough to talk about it on the show. I would have though, because I think it's extraordinary. Um, it's as we were talking about earlier, it's a hybrid doc that manages to actually integrate the two modes into each other, I think extremely effectively. And it's about a guy who suffers from chronic fatigue, who um, through kind of work placements is set up in a bird sanctuary. And he has a very specific role, which I won't mention in the bird sanctuary, but it's an extremely restorative, restful, I think extremely beautiful film um, with the most beautiful single shot I've seen this year, which is of an owl, a beautiful barn owl, slowly returning the gaze of the camera, um, which I'm happy to, I'm happy to recommend. And my favorite film this year is probably Dick Johnson is Dead, Kirsten Johnson's documentary, um, which is, has been extremely difficult to watch because it's kind of mirrored my life circumstances quite closely. 
Um, it's about Kirsten Johnson, the filmmaker who made Camera Person, which is one of my favorite films. Um, she is making a film about her dad who, who is called Dick Johnson, who has just received a dementia diagnosis. And it's, it's a film in which she relentlessly stages incidents of his death. And so these amazingly high wire pranks in which he is killed in front of the camera and then resurrected. Um, that sounds tough and it is very tough, but the way in which Johnson manages to, in one note, be incredibly affecting, and the film is a tearjerker of the most monumental proportions, and also extremely funny and playful and vivid and imaginative. I don't, I, I was about to write about this film for Jim actually, and I found myself so moved by it that I couldn't, and I didn't know how she did it. I don't know how those two emotions, which are so disparate, are sitting so closely next to each other in, in the film. I, I think it's a wonder. Great, and that sounds amazing. And, and I've, it's been on my list, so I'm gonna go and watch that as well um, this week. Uh, so Jim, I, I'm reaching pretty far back into 2020 here. Um, so because I think all of these films, I think we reviewed in the, in the EHFM studio. Actually, I think there's one I'm not sure about, but I think we did. But so if we go back. The the, the furthest to go back is Uncut Gems. Um, it was the Safdie brothers film about you know Adam Sandler's character in the Diamond District getting a hold of this. Um, gemstone and basically there's the ridiculous machinations he goes through to kind of like just keep one step ahead of people people coming to get payback on him effectively uh, i'm not going to go into it too much a lot has been said about the film a lot has been written about the film um it is available on netflix if you haven't seen it go watch it i i, I really thought it was excellent uh i was fortunate enough to see it in a theater and I think that's the way to see it, but I don't think it's going to lose a huge amount watching it at home. If you haven't seen it, do do go and watch it. I think it's fantastic. The other one, um, again, a lot has been said about it is Parasite. And I, I think there's it's an excellent film. And really, I'm not going to go on about it. Again, it's another film that's had a lot written and a lot said about it. For what it's worth, I do think a lot of the other films that have been mentioned so far um, are right up there and you know i i i i'm quite happy to give people a peek behind the curtain and that we've cooked the books here slightly in the sense that we've done this so that we're kind of highlighting a wider range of films but i would happily second um you know just about any of the other recommendations that we made here the final one that i'm going to make uh where i think i was the only one who's going to bring it up but i think it was quite well thought of at the time we reviewed it is uh the assistant and I think it's really a film which is worth seeing because of the subject matter it deals with is very, it's getting dealt with a lot of films at the moment. And I think there's a lot of films that have dealt with this idea of like workplace sexual harassment and sexual misconduct. The way this film deals with it for me is extremely effective. It is, it's not a film of monologues or polemics or anything like that. It's just basically just cold, hard presentation. And that's what really makes it so affecting and i think there are other films that have tried to grandstand more with this and they lose something as a result of it but for the assistant for me i think really really gets that subject absolutely perfectly in terms of getting like how affecting and how horrifying it can actually be um so those are the three that i would go with uh, but as i say i'd happily second any of the other films that have been mentioned 
I love those all as well. Um, Stephanie, um, what's your thoughts as well for your best favorite three? Well, um, the one thing I'll say is that it's been a disappointing year, 2020, but it's been a very good year for female filmmakers. And the three that I'm going to recommend are all directorial debuts as well. Um, the first one, if you've not caught it in the cinema, you need to see it when it's released. It's Cinema by Rose Glass. And it's a very interesting look at theological horror. We've seen all the all the sort of religious horrors before this one is nothing like any of the sort. It's very innovative. And um, it's something that you, I think that has been kind of went through all the horror horror years of the years to kind of make something very, very unique and a very, it's a very, um, it's a very thrilling experience. And it's something, I think it's different. Like I've seen it in the cinema, but I think it, you know, it will do the job just as well from watching it at home. The other, um, one of the other films is, um, you can see my review on take one is Claire Oakley's um, Makeup. And it's a, um, pretty much follows a, um, yeah, a young girl who goes to stay with her boyfriend in a Cornwall, a Cornwall campsite. And that's not the horrific part of it, but um, it's the kind of a really nice addition to LGBT um, key cinema. So if you haven't checked it out yet, it's, it's great to watch. It's visually stunning. It's very psychedelic. And um, the third one you can see now on Netflix is Radha Black's The 40-Year-Old Version um, of Failing Playwright. Um, turned rapper and it's just so witty and the, the script's so great and you know the songs are really catchy as well so not going to say too much about that it's available to stream so just check that out on Netflix if you have the chance all amazing choices I love I love I love all of our choices here so we highly recommend them um, just to add it to all of you what are your 2020 film 2021 film aspirations what do you have um, I would like to have time to watch four films a day like Mark did during lockdown. I'm not sure he's be able to do that now, but no, I had to give up. <laughs> but that would be an aspiration as well as for me, um, getting some some films on some walls. That's what I'd like to do. Um, but uh, but yeah, how about how about you guys? I, I'll settle for being back in the cinema again. To be honest, yeah. like, 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 I mean, it sounds like such a it sounds like such a low bar, but in the context of in the context of the year that we're just finishing, I think I, I'll, I'll settle for that. You know, I like the only time I've been to cinema since March is when we went to see On the Rocks for the the show, and you know. I mean, okay, I enjoyed the film. Fine, but I, I think, I, I think, you know, there are so many films. Like, there are so many films I would love to have seen the theater this year, and it's the flipping Sofia Coppola midlife crisis one is the one that I actually end up seeing. You know, so <laughs> I think I'll settle for being back in a cinema for something that I, I feel really, really belongs there and it really adds to you because I think you remember them more when you're when you see them in that setting. So I, I would like, I'd like that again. Absolutely. And Stephanie, how about you? I think um, this year, because it's been so isolating and we've sort of been confined to our houses, unfortunately, it has inspired me to actually see a lot more from female filmmakers. So I'm trying to, I've not yet done my yearly um, 52 films by women, so I'm going to try and aim to do that and add a few more, um, a few more reviews to the, to the pile. Um, I don't have any 
immediate plans I, I feel like I make them and then they're cancelled by the current situation so I'm trying not to be too optimistic and just go with the flow. Wise choice, wise. Uh, and Mark, yourself? Yeah, I don't really have any um, New Year's cinematic resolutions. Um, I would I would like to be back in a cinema. I realize that that's not going to happen for a while, and I'm okay with that. There are umpteen ways to see films. Uh, this, this year has done something kind of interesting to my film viewing, which is um, I'm really beholden on Mubi and Curzon for stuff now in a way that I wasn't before. Um, I, you know, I was interested in the stuff that they were bringing out, but I wasn't like checking them daily to see what have you picked up. I wasn't reading screen daily as much as I am just now. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna be okay with settling for a slower pace, but I've, the problem is, well, I've just said that, is with too many films, there's a lack of actual engagement with them. And you're constantly glancing at one film thinking, ah, this might be interesting, but having, 10 other things you could be watching at any moment. And I think Amy Taubin, the critic, um, somewhere said that the challenge of a new movie is enormous at the minute because you could watch almost anything. And while you've got the, not the entirety of the history of cinema, because that's a lie about availability, but while you've got loads of uh, films that you could be watching at any moment, why would you, you know, why would you watch a new film that you're not enjoying you know, so that's been a challenge and it'll be a challenge for next year too, but I'm going to try and, you know, slow but thorough engagement with as many things as I can. Very well put. I I, I agree with everybody. It's the, we don't have to have um, New Year's resolutions here, but thought I'd see what, what your hopes are. Um, and thank you everyone for listening to us this year. We've um, really had an amazing um, group of, 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 collaborators uh mark and steph were with us a lot and um so were so were many others so i've just just had so much fun reviewing and having very strong opinions um on these films for for you know whether agreement or disagreement and um yeah and and also getting through this this crazy crazy year um but yeah so please uh follow us online and uh let us know what you think and uh tell us what your favorite films are uh, you know yada 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 um so thanks so much uh happy holidays uh, happy hogmanay and uh see you in january